everyone. Welcome to another week of the Live Life of Wrestling podcast with Sincere my man Mike Mahler, and a very special guest this week. I have another great author on the show today. We have Daniel Coyle on the show today, and we've been talking about Daniel for the last couple of weeks. He is the author of the book, The Talent Code, and one of my favorites, The Little Book of Talent, as well as Lance Armstrong's War and Hardball. Daniel, thanks a lot for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on our show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. It's fun to be here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Daniel. We appreciate it. Talent Code's an awesome book, and greatness isn't born. It's grown. Here's how. And we've had a lot of our readers talk about how every time we have an author come on, they have to go buy the book. <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure quite a few people are going to be buying your book who haven't heard of you yet because it's, it's a very fascinating read on what it takes to be successful. And I just wanted to dive right into this with you and just bang out some of these questions. How much of mastery or just getting really good at any skill do you feel is genetic potential and then how much of it is what you call deliberate practice in your book and maybe you could get into a little bit of what deliberate practice actually is for people yeah, who no, it's funny you know that that's a question that that i was pondering a lot when i started out on this journey about five right. years ago you know and I, I started hearing about these talent hotbeds and um, and decided as a journalist uh, to go to go visit them and to go visit uh, the scientists who study this kind of stuff and see what patterns exist. And before I started that journey, I would have said it's you know oh it's more genetic. Um, but having gone through it, having lived it for five years, having spent the last five years visiting Navy SEALs and and the top teams in, in professional and collegiate sports and the best coaches. I have come to believe that if I had, if I was forced, if you had forced me to say, I'd say it's about 75, 25, uh, 75 being uh, the practice and 25 being the genes. Um, and, and you have to be a little bit particular you have to, for a super raw athletic skill. If you want to win a marathon um, or if you want to jump, high jump, uh, those are raw athletic skills. Right. Uh, tipped more toward genes, but as soon as you get into anything complicated, whether that's reading a defense as a quarterback, whether that's playing chess, whether that's talking like you and I are talking now, writing, a, writing a, you know, something down, writing a computer program, right. we're talking about complex skills. That's where practice, the percentage, the importance of practice and motivation skyrockets. Um, if you're on the very, very point, oh, oh, one percent, you know, genes matter a little bit more if you're trying to compete. But for most of us, in most of our lives, the way we can impact it the most is by creating a little space for some deep practice, for some deliberate practice, because that's how you grow your brain. That's what it comes down to. That's the way you grow your brain. If you want to get better at what you do, you've got to have a faster brain, a more accurate brain. And the only way that we have to do that is through intensive motivation, intensive practice. Would you say that people that are very good, people that are, deliberate practice is hard work. So would you say that people that are willing to go through that process have a genetic predisposition to that? Not really. You know, you can say that, that that's one way to think about it, but what I've seen yeah. is you can get clicked on. You can get turned on. I mean, there was probably a time in your life where you weren't as into fitness as you are now, but something right. in your environment, someone you stared at, someone you got inspired by, some environment you were in, click that switch. Okay. You know, we talk about the respiratory system and the circulatory system. We have a motivation system. And when we, when we stare at someone that we want to become, whether that in my case would be a writer, uh, in your case it might be a fitness expert, um, when you do that, you unlock a heck of a lot of motivation. Um, and there's a number of fascinating experiments that get into the details of that. But um, that's kind of the bottom line. And so, no, it's, it's more contextual. It has more to do with our environment and our experience. And 
if you want to, um, because it's such hard work, that motivational part is absolutely essential. And so what you tend to see in these places that are very successful and in people that are very successful, they've got what you might call a full windshield. Their windshield, the people they look at every day, their, their, their environment, their mentors, everybody that they are connected to and are staring at are fueling them. Um, right. And so we can have some control over that. That's not something that, you know, is genetic or anything. It has to do with the environment you set up around yourself. And I was watching one of your TED Talks, and you were talking about struggling. I'm watching some of your other interviews. You brought that up. And that pretty much with struggling, that's when learning speed increases. And what Mike and I talk about a lot on this show is that a lot of folks, when they're trying to start a new business or starting a new training program, what usually deters a lot of people is failure. And they take that failure personally and they just let it crush them and they don't move past it. Where there are some who take these struggles and they just really take on the struggles in the face of adversity and come out on the other side so much better. We yep. always talk about when we're starting projects, a lot of times the real fun is actually in the journey itself, not actually arriving to the finished product. Once yep. you get to the finished product, it's kind of like, oh, it's very anticlimactic. And it's just but going through the struggles of trying to put it together. It seems like that's where the joy really is. So can you just talk more about where failure is learning and how that does speed up the process of learning as far as failure? Yeah, right. And I think a good way to talk about that is through an idea of the sweet spot. And, and this is an idea that, that comes out of um, psychology and science and learning. The sweet spot is that spot on the edge of your ability where you are failing about 30% of the time. You're succeeding about 60 to 80, 70% of the time, but you're failing almost a third of the time. That's when learning happens the fastest. And it's funny that it's called the sweet spot because it feels sour. It feels bad to be in that spot. You're on the mm -hmm. edge, you're reaching. In, in the book, I tell the story of uh, Clarissa. Who's a, she's a clarinet player who was part of this experiment where they tracked her learning and her learning velocity which is a great term, learning velocity, this idea that we can speed up our learning process. And what they found is when she learned the fastest by far was where she was making mistakes, feeling those mistakes. It was when she was practicing her clarinet, it was like there was electricity being shot through the keys of the clarinet because she really felt that mistake and then she would fix it and then she would reach again and make another mistake and feel that one. And it feels terrible and it's difficult, but each time you feel that mistake and fix it, you are connecting a new wire in your brain. You know, you are, that is the no pain, no gain moment. And to reinterpret the struggle, I mean, that struggle feels like a verdict. Mm -hmm. It feels like, it feels very personal. But the places I visited and the people I visited who were successful in this area reinterpreted that struggle. They felt that same, you know, when you feel a, a burn in the gym, you feel it as a positive thing right? You feel that that's right. a sign that my muscles are working at their limit. And when you feel that same embarrassing, uh, frustrating burn of struggle in, a, in the skill area, that is the exact same thing. Now, that's not to say that you should go out and fail 80% of the time. You know, that's not a good place to be. And that's, that's not to say you should go out and set it up so you succeed 95% of the time. But keep it in the sweet spot. You see that failure is, is not as a verdict, but as, as an opportunity to, um, to, get, to use the information you're getting to make a better reach the next day. Daniel, I think, that's, I think our school system in a lot of ways may impede a lot of the things you're talking about. And what I mean by that is in school, often if, if you get 80%, that's considered okay. The goal is always 90% or more, that's an A. But yeah. that, it's rarely in life when you're trying to build something or pursue something are you going to have that success percentage. 
And I think what happens is a lot of people get discouraged. Like they'll start a sales job and think, okay, if I'm a good salesperson, I should close nine out of 10 calls. Yep. And no one, no one does that. Yep. But I think a lot of people are programmed to think that's what they should be able to do to be successful. Because I know so many people that are going, I, I don't want to get into a business because I, I want a sure thing. Yep. And I think that a lot of us are brought up with that whole sure thing mentality. And that as a result, we don't really grow. We, we fail to realize our full potential because we don't realize how critical actually struggling is to that whole thing. That's exactly. And I mean, how, so how would you recommend that someone kind of have a paradigm shift where they folk, where they actually embrace adversity, embrace struggle, as opposed to trying to stay in that comfort zone where they're just, they're really good at being mediocre basically because they're never right. willing to right. dial it up and go well, to that hard zone. Right, and then, well, the first step is to kind of educate yourself on what's really happening when you're when you're right. on the edge of your ability. Really try to understand, because when you start to picture the wires of your brain connecting up, that's a very powerful thing. Um, and and the second thing I'd say is keep a journal. You know, we see that over and over again right. uh, with top right. performers to track those efforts, to see yeah. those improvements, because they're hard. You know, when you make something automatic, it doesn't feel like you're getting better. But right. target the things you want to get good at. And to and to reach and and over a you know in your environment there's a there are times and it can happen in a very short amount of time to, to sort of target short intense bursts of struggle it's it's you're not going to go out and sort of struggle on the edge of your ability for two or three hours at a time that's really hard to do but right. you can do it for ten minutes and and to really make space in your life to sort of and you see this in good schools it's nice that you brought up schools Mike because. You see in good schools, they create spaces for this kind of struggle. They create, they, they sort of design for it. And so a good example of that is um, there's this, this guy named Kevin Smith who's in his 30s. He, he grew up wanting to be a basketball star and ended up in his 30s running a state farm office in Chicago. He was opened in the teeth of the recession, so he was getting no business. He realized he needed to attract and retain some clients. And so he started doing this taking a page out of his basketball book. He started with his little staff rehearsing, rehearsing meeting someone new, rehearsing having a message to them, rehearsing pivoting to make the ask, rehearsing the follow-up. They did live-action role-play over and over and over again, just among themselves. Um, and they saw a massive improvement in their performance. They just created a little space in their life where they could nudge things from into this productive struggle area for a few right. minutes a day, and they saw a massive, massive change. And so it's just kind of becoming alert to these moments that are already kind of all around us where we have the opportunity to lean forward, to grit our teeth, to um, be productively frustrated, and to um, kind of keep reaching for these targets and see what happens. And right. why did that happen? Why did the golf ball go to the left instead of the right? to really try to figure that out and take charge of the learning process. And I think coming from that story, I think what he's doing right here is also he's creating a sense of familiarity with these folks. So they're not as surprised when things are not working a certain way or when they are going a certain way because they've pretty much, they've had these scenarios where they've kind of created an environment where they've been there before. So therefore, they pretty much know how to respond to those situations, whether negative or positive in that situation. And you talk about that as far as coaching. One of the sure signs of a great coach when he creates this visualization, these vivid images. And being in the field that Mike and I are in, we truly understand that. But it also helps in situations where you're teaching in school. And yep, yep. No, that's one thing that you see with all with all good coaches. And they, it's funny, you know, if we sort of 
were to all close our eyes and think about the most important people in our lives, you know, who really directed us and changed the direction of our lives. A lot of us would end up thinking about coaches. A lot of us end up thinking about teachers, you know. And these are people who are – their skills are are sometimes hard to appreciate because they're so subtle. But what we see with these master coaches um, or the ones in our own lives and the ones that sort of science is showing us our master coaches now – is this ability to connect, you know, this ability to be kind of emotionally athletic, to make a connection. And then that comes first, you know, getting somebody's heart and then, um, and then delivering information in really vivid, vivid chunks um, Mm -hmm. that people can understand. They almost operate like a GPS machine. You know, they're saying, reach here, now reach here, now reach over here. Now you've got it. Now you're home. Now you're home. And, and it's, it's beautiful to watch, and once you sort of clue into the way it works, it's um, it's a, sort of a nice window through which to watch your own learning and the learning of you know your kids and others. Yeah, you talk about how coaching is one of the three critical components of developing mastery or, or developing a high level of skill. Why is coaching so important? Can you expand on what you're just getting into? I mean, to me, the obvious answer would be that it helps save you a lot of time and make sure that you're going in the right direction. But yeah. is there more to it than just that? You know, there is because they, they do that, and that's the important that's, – that's really probably the most important thing. They have information. They understand how the technique needs to work. Um, right. But there's the soft side to the coaching that I think is, is really important. It has to do with that connection. You know, it really takes two fuel cells to build talent. It takes the emotional side of things, and it takes the informational side of things. And the master coach is in the perfect position to kind of fuel both of those fuel cells, to, to provide the inspiration, to create an environment, a training environment that is both inspiring and filled with the right kind of information, uh, to make that human connection that makes such a difference. Um, when I was visiting the, the, uh, the, the Moscow Tennis Club that got me started on this journey, uh, I saw a little girl show up for her first tennis lesson. The coach was 77 years old. She had about 20 other kids on the coach on the court at the time, but the door opened and this little girl walked in and she had her tennis racket in a plastic shopping bag and she was terrified. Um, and the coach noticed her and went over to her and bent down and had this moment, like it took five seconds, but just this, they looked at each other and she welcomed the little girl to the, to the place. And then she said, I want you to do something for me. I'm going to, and, and she tossed the little girl a tennis ball and the little girl caught it. And it was like just this great interaction that right. is the soul of what coaching is. All those coaches that, you know, when we close our eyes and think about our great coaches, they create those moments, you know, they create those kinds of connections. And, and so that's why, um, that's why the coach ends up being, you know, such an important part of the, of the equation. It's not to say that people don't teach themselves amazing things, um, but, but it's to have a coach in your life like that, to appreciate them, to, to, most importantly, seek them out and make them part of your ecosystem is one of the most powerful things you can do. Now, one thing that you brought up in your book, Talent Code, that's really interesting is how if people are in a really comfortable environment, it's very difficult to push themselves to that edge you talk about. And how in Moscow, actually, in the tennis environment there, they're not walking into this first-class tennis center where you have immaculate courts, immaculate equipment, and things of that nature. They're walking into an environment where most Americans probably wouldn't want to send their kids to learn tennis, you know, <laughs> being perfectly blunt about it. But in some ways, it seems like that's a very important component because it makes you strive for 
wanting to get out of that. In other words, you don't already feel like you're successful. Often if you walk into a place like that, you're like, wow, I've already made it. Look at where I'm training and so forth. And maybe you're not going to push yourself as hard. It reminds me of what the bodybuilder, Dorian Yates, said about working out in London versus the U.S., where he would train in this dungeon environment, basically, for each competition, because it made you really focused on the training. You didn't lose right. enough. He, he didn't want to be outside on the beach somewhere in Los Angeles with sunshine and pretty girls walking by and all that, because he, in his mind, you're not going to push yourself as hard because subconsciously you've already felt like you've made it. So that brings exactly. up an interesting component of, of how, how an environment shapes our work ethic. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. luxury, luxury is a narcotic. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah. It's an oak paneling. It's a narcotic. So, um, you know, these places sort of naturally come about that way, but it is very interesting to see um, how you can create sort of a Spartan, simple environment right. that focuses you, you know, it, it, yeah. it, 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 there's no distractions. And, and that's a nice thing because it's something that we all have some control over. You know, we, we have a certain amount of control over. I mean, it's funny to look at the American clubs, the American tennis clubs, and the American setups like IMG in Florida, which are these gorgeous resort environments. Right, and right. people wonder why great athletes don't come out of there. They've got, yeah. they've got all the great coaches. They've got all the great <laughs> material. These kids are brilliant athletes, but yeah. they don't go because the whole thing is like a big neon sign that says, relax. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I find that even in, my, even in my business, I found that early in my career when I was really struggling, I mean, I would wake up with fire, you know, write articles every day. I would be out there booking gigs, no problem. Now, I, I, it's not to say that I sit around and do nothing, but it, it's more of a struggle in a lot of ways when you wake up and you're already in a really nice house. You know, you're making passive money, passive income while you're sleeping, selling my products and so forth. So sometimes you wake up and the first thing you think is, I don't really need to do any work today. I'm just gonna go to the strip, play cards, I'm go good. back at the pool. <laughs> yeah, and then you have to kind of fight your way out of that. So in some ways, it's almost like success impedes more success because it, it makes you soft if you're not careful. Yep, I think you're exactly right. And as a matter of fact, Daniel, can you just expand? I remember on the TEDx talk you were speaking about Brazil and soccer and how Brazil wasn't always great. When we think about soccer, we think right. about Brazil. They've yeah. kicked everybody's butt for as long as, at least in our generation, they yeah. seem like they've always been at the top when it comes to soccer. But they, that wasn't always the case, and this turnaround really didn't happen until probably about maybe 50 years ago. But it came down to this one style of training that these kids did that made everything turn around. Can you speak about that, please? Yeah, no, it's totally fascinating. I mean, we think we, you know, we have common sense explanations. Well, it's, it's warm in Brazil, and they really love soccer, so it makes sense <laughs> that they would dominate. Well, that sort of is true, but there's, there's a lot of other places that are warm and really love soccer that don't come anywhere near the level of success. So there was a, an English coach named Simon Clifford who went down and, and explored this question. And, and what he discovered that was around 1950, they all started playing this game called Futebol do Salão, which is called Soccer in the Room. It's Portuguese for soccer in the room. And it resembles soccer if you put soccer in a phone booth and fed it amphetamines. Like it's <laughs> super fast. It's super pressurized there's five aside it's on a basketball court size space the ball is small hard to control small center of gravity and the passing lanes are just like tiny right and there's somebody on top of you all the time so you you are constantly forced into the sweet spot you're constantly forced into making mistakes and fixing them and the speed of the game is much faster and so you know there's been you touch the ball 600 percent more so you get you know, compared to the outside game, where the outside game, by comparison, looks like kids batting a balloon around, 
you know, on the beach. Like there's tons of space and it's really slow and easy. And this thing is just a frenzy. And when you look at, at the history of – and most, most of the top Brazilian players play nothing but this game until they're about 12. So they put in thousands of hours playing nothing but this error-filled, super-pressurized, fast, fast game. And, and the, the guy, Simon Clifford, uh, decided, hey, well, maybe this game is the secret. And he brought a bunch of soccer balls back to England, where he was from, to the little town where he was from. And four years later, the kids from that town beat – the English national under-14 team, and the Irish national under-14 team. And their genes didn't change. The water didn't change. The coaching didn't change. What changed was their practice space. What changed was their willingness to put themselves into a place of intensive, intensive struggle, intensive reaching and failing and reaching again. That's, and they got really fast brains as a result, you know. We talk about muscle memory with training a lot, but that's not where the, the skill, the skill resides in the brain. And, and right. so these guys used that game to build fast, accurate brains, and it made all the difference. So just kind of reiterate what Malcolm Gladwell touched on and outliers with putting in the 10,000 hours. I often think that, that so many people, when they read that, they misinterpret that entire theory. They just feel like, if I'm in this industry and I'm working in this industry and I'm putting in this work for 10,000 hours, then that's going to make me a master at it. Whereas with these young men, up until the age 12, they're putting in hours, but they're putting in hours with all the mistakes. Nothing yep. else is happening in their lives for the most part other than focusing on getting better at soccer in this very close environment, touching the ball as many times as possible, failing, falling, doing what you have to do, failing fast, falling forward, and just time and just mastering that over and over and over and becoming more familiar with that environment and understanding what it takes to get much better at that. So it's very, like you said, it's very deliberate practice. I think that's where we kind of lose people when they start talking about the 10,000 hours theory and, and, and they just get it all wrong. That's right. It's not about quantity. It's about the quality. Right. right? And the other thing that makes that really high quality is that it's super game-like. I mean, and, and you see this with other good practice, too. You know, when you talk about 10,000 hours, it sort of sounds like you should go down into a salt mine and start <laughs> – it's just, like, painful and exhausting. But right. you see people in it, and they're totally immersed and absorbed because it's, it's, it's a game, man. I mean, they're just they're – just, it's, it's thrilling. Um, it's pushing you to the edge, and whenever anybody gets into that – state, you know, the psychologists might call it flow, um, that, that moment where the, the challenge meets your ability in a really interesting way, um, that's where they're at, you know, and, and they're having a, a, a lot of fun while they're doing it. So, and the coach is not, it's not like a American practice where the coach blows his whistle every five minutes and stops and everybody stops and they go over some little bit. No, the game is so beautifully designed that the game is the teacher. You know, the game is the coach. And, and that's, to me, the lesson is to really try to put a lot of thought and, 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 and uh, ideas into the designing of these practice spaces. Those are the, that's where you can have a huge impact. And you see that with a lot of good master coaches. They spend a tremendous amount of time thinking and designing the practice space. Very interesting. Yeah. I wanted to get into a little bit of violin, which you discussed quite a bit in your book. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that is? And why is it important to mastering any skill? Yeah, no, great question. So, um, it, it, we'll probably remember the term myelin sheath from biology class. Uh, right. M-Y-E-L-I-N, myelin. And it was the stuff that wraps the wires of your brain. It's just the same reason that you have insulation on the cords of our computers or anything. If you don't insulate wires, the voltage, the signal leaks out. So our brains have this insulation around the wires of our brain. 
And for many years, it was thought to be inert. It was thought to be uh, uninteresting, thought to be essentially um, inactive. And it turns out uh, that assumption was fantastically wrong. Uh, it, it is active. A myelin grows. And the interesting part is that it grows in response to intensive practice. And when you practice the myelin sheath, the myelin wrapping, it's just like electrical tape. It gets thicker and thicker and thicker. You get more and more wraps of electrical tape on the wires of your brain. And when you do that, the signal speed, I don't know if there's any electrical engineers out there, but when you put more insulation around a wire, the signal speed goes way up. And not just a little bit, it goes up to from two miles an hour to 200 miles an hour. So as, as the scientist, the neuroscientist explained to me, myelin is like broadband that you build. It's broadband that you're building in your brain by intensively repeating and intensively reaching um, and intensively practicing. And they've even done these incredible studies where they'll take a group of, say, piano players and scan their brains before one group will do 50 hours of practice, one group will do 100 hours of practice. And the myelin growth in those appropriate areas is proportional to the amount of time they spent. So in other words, every hour you practice earns you more wraps of this electrical tape. It earns you a little bit more speed. It earns you a little bit more accuracy. It earns you a little bit more skill. We think of practice as being this drudgery, of being sort of this, this you know, difficulty. But in fact, it's this really sort of thrilling act of construction, you know, where you, you are actually making profound changes um, to, to your brain and to your skills with every intensive hour that you spend, which is a, a message that I don't think we hear enough. Right. All right. I like how you liken this style of practicing and, and training to circuit training versus doing something just for time and just going through the time and the drudgery of it, but actually just like taking these little breaks and these little blocks and treating it just like we, do, we would if we were in the gym just these little circuits in order just to build that, that muscle. So yep. I definitely like that. I think our audience can really relate to that. Yeah, cool. Now, is, what's, what's the connection between myelin and having difficulty breaking bad habits? You kind of breeze, you breeze over that a little bit in your book. I wanted to discuss that a little bit. Yeah, this is interesting, you know, not to get too sciencey, but, you know, our brains are really good at, at wrapping those circuits. They're really good at wrapping, but they're, they, we can't unwrap it. Right. You can't peel that electrical tape off. We have no way of doing that. This is how evolution has built us, which makes habits really hard to break because they never disappear. There's that, that circuit, that, those wires are still up in your brain really wanting to fire. And so the best way to break habits is not to try to break them, but to build new ones. Um, right. You cannot ever disassemble the electricity, that, the electrical circuit that is your bad golf swing. That will always be there with you. But what you have to do <laughs> is slowly with sort of baby steps, because that's the way it is, this learning happens, um, with baby steps, build a new one. And yeah. it's difficult and it's kind of slow at times, but that's the only path forward um, to, to sort of embrace the idea that baby steps are really the way that learning happens. Seems like in physics, once energy is created, it can't be destroyed, right? You can only transfer it to another arena. But it seems to me that if you're, if you're trying to break a bad habit, you have to take the energy that's going to that and redirect it somewhere else. Like if you have an addictive personality and you're addicted to things that are bad for your health or counterproductive drug addiction, gambling, et cetera, it seems like you're not going to get rid of that addictive personality, but maybe you can redirect it towards something else like health and fitness and building your business, et cetera, something more constructive, positive. That's a good way to put it because I think a lot of people buy into the myth that you can somehow all of a sudden be free of it. Right. Um, 
And it seems like more success happens when people acknowledge, no, that's always going to be with me. I'm just building something new over here. Right. I think when you try to deny you have those things, that's when that, – that just gives it more power. So I think when someone tries to use willpower, and Sincere and I deal with this all the time, of course, in the fitness business where people are trying to eat healthy, but they're just using willpower. You know, yep. they're, just trying, they're, just, they're just trying to resist, like, no, I'm not going to have the ice cream today, or no, I'm not going to have the pizza today. And to me, that's just a battle of attrition, and you're going to lose that battle at some point. Yeah. You, know, you can only hold that. What are you going to hold out for the next 70 years? You know, it's not going to happen. But I think it's like that energy has, is already being created. It's just going to the wrong place. So let's redirect it somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, now, now it's no longer something you're trying to resist. It's a paradigm shift where you, you're not tempted necessarily by that anymore because that energy has gone somewhere else that's more fulfilling for you. Yep, I think that's a nice way to put it. And it speaks to the the role of kind of design happen, you know, the, how we design our lives, how we design our habits, how we sort of build um, our daily routines is a, is a massive kind of leverage point for making these kind of changes. Now, is the ability to build myelin age-related? It is. It's a kid, as we know, any of us who have kids know, that kids right. are good at, at picking up language at certain times. And if you don't start picking up an instrument, there are very few top musicians who start when they're 20. Um, myelin arrives in the brain in, in a wave, kind of from the back of the front, the motor areas, to the, to the front of the brain in the more cognitive areas. Um, and it arrives uh, sort of through, throughout childhood. Um, language area gets myelinated around 12. So, um, but what the important thing to take away is that the essential dynamic, the mechanism never really changes. So if you want to learn Spanish at age 30, you go through the same thing that a 12-year-old would go through, but the 12-year-old has this super myelination going on, so they only take two repeats to learn the, the verb, and you might take right. 10. Right. But, right. but the mechanism doesn't change. We all have the same path forward. Kids can, kids can cruise it, uh, and, and the rest of us you know, go a little bit slower as we get older. And you can grow up throughout your life. I mean, that's the other thing. You can build um, new habits and new circuitry um, you know, and, uh, until, until your last days. And I think when you speak about learning a new language, even at 30, I think what makes a program like Rosetta Stone so successful is the fact that using what we're talking about with great coaches is that vivid image. And when we were kids, that's pretty much how we learned. I mean, when we were sitting there watching Sesame Street, it wasn't like easy to learn ABCs and one, two, threes, whatever. But what was happening here, they were attaching this to songs. And you always hear so many times when someone's coming from another country to America and you're wondering like, okay, you've been in America for five minutes. How is it that your English is so good? Well, I watched a lot of American TV. I watched a lot of commercials. Now, yeah. surely most of the time they're talking to you, they may be having a conversation by repeating commercial phrases or things like that, but it helps them because they're associating these things with music and these pictures and all those things are helping them learn a lot faster. And I think what happens as we get older, especially here in America, as we get older and trying to learn new things, things get in the way for the fact that we have so many other things that have happened, so many experiences that have happened in our lives that deter us from catching on quickly because we put too much thought into it. We feel like it has to be this way. Well, if I'm going to learn Spanish, I need to go to class. I need to go back to college. Oh, man, now I need to get some money together. I need to get a scholarship or I need right. to get financial aid. So I put all these things. All you want to do is learn Spanish before you go on vacation to Acapulco next spring. And that's the beautiful thing about children. They don't have all these experiences hindering them. They're more open to learn. You know, it's interesting. Sincere, you bring up an interesting point, too. That it makes me think of my brother a little bit, too, in the sense that my brother learned Japanese in his 20s. And he, he always felt when he, I remember when he first started learning and he was thinking, oh, I wish I had tried learning this as a kid. It would have been so much easier. But mm -hmm. then, he, then he immersed himself in Japan. Like he moved out to Japan and lived in a, in a small town outside of Tokyo where no one speaks English. 
But you want to talk about struggle. I mean, you can't even order a meal without knowing Japanese there. You, I mean, he was he was helpless for the first couple of months where he had to rely on other people to do the most simplistic things, order a meal at a restaurant, find directions here, help yeah. him with getting an apartment, things like that. But that struggle made you want – that gave you serious incentive to learn the language much faster. And he was also obsessed with learning the language where he would have this – I don't think they even have it anymore, but it was called a word tank where he would just be constantly putting words in English and then getting the Japanese equivalent and memorizing that all day long and carry this thing with him everywhere. And then within a couple of years, he was fluent. He speaks – he spoke fluently, mastered it, no problem. And he said that he, he learned it a lot faster than any little kid would, you know, an American kid trying to learn Japanese because – as an, as an adult, you can think these things through a little bit more. So it's, you don't have the, the myelin that you're talking about, Daniel, but at the same yep. time, you, you, have, you have more experience and determination, especially when you put yourself in an environment like that. So I think he actually followed a lot of the things that you talk about without realizing it. He, he embraced the struggle. He had the ignition, the motivation to really learn it. And then he had some coaching as well. But for the most part, it was, it was him willing to embrace that struggle and push through it all the way. That's awesome. Well, it's rare to it's rare to find that these days. Yeah, yeah, you don't see it. Courage to make that jump into into whatever you know, in language or anything. That's that's the that's the part that's kind of you exciting I, too. You know what I think the problem is, Daniels? I think that when when we finish school, whether it's your bachelor's degree or master's or especially PhD, like a lot of the PhDs I know, when they finish that, they don't want to learn another thing ever again. You know, right. They don't want to read another book because they 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 associate learning with such an arduous practice. That they're going, you know what? I had to read a hundred books a month you know, during that whole phase. That I don't, I don't want to ever learn again. And then they just shut off. And I, I, even a lot of people who get their bachelor's degree, once they get it, they're like, oh, thank God, I never have to read a book again. And I, and I go, that's such an unhealthy habit. But I, I think that's the problem is that we associate learning with something that's not desirable. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, associating learning with pain. With pain, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think we can you know, put the responsibility for this at the at the foot of our schools, which were built as sort of to model factories, right? I mean, they right, look like right. factories, they act like factories, they treat people like you're in a factory. Um, but there's a lot of exciting things happening in education, and I've seen it even in my own kids, you know, where you there are different kinds of schools, and there are places that really put learning first. And when you speak to the people at the top of whatever profession they're at, whether it's Peyton Manning or Warren Buffett or anybody, those people are all learners, man. None of them yeah. are sort of mm-hmm. satisfied and feels like they've got it figured out. All of them um, make room in their life for, you know, intensive practicing and, and are all obsessed with that process. They all love that process. So, but, know, but isn't that because they love what they do, Daniel? Like, so for example, like if, if you want to get really good, if you're, if you're going to put 10,000 hours in something, it's not going to be something you hate, right? Like, for example, oh. if, if, I, if, I, if I have no desire whatsoever to be a great investment banker, but I decide, you know what, I want to make a lot of money, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to embrace the struggle and put in those 10,000 hours, I doubt I'll even make it to hour 500 because I, I just don't like it at all. You know, you're just, you're just not going to like – I think that's another thing that people don't realize is they, they, don't, associate, they don't associate learning with fun because they're learning a bunch of stuff that they have zero passion for. It's not even remotely interesting to them. But, uh, but, if, but if you're really passionate, I mean, you're not going to get really good at something either unless you're really passionate about it, no matter what it is. And you're certainly not going to reach that mastery level or beyond where you have to put in that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. So I, th- I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that 
people are not being honest with themselves and having the courage to pursue the things that they're really passionate about. Yeah, and it, it, it speaks to another question that I bump into a lot out here, which is um, people sort of waiting for the light to shine down from heaven for the passion. Right. You know, like, right, right. oh, I'm just waiting to find my passion. And, and, and <laughs> it's sort of caught up as this, you know, as this rapture or something like that. But, you know, in my experience, it's, it's much messier than that, and it's and yeah. it's much um, more random than that. And you know, you will even with things you're passionate about. Sometimes you got to work to uncover that passion a little bit. You might not be passionate about your brother might not have been passionate about Japanese at the beginning, right? Like he was in, intrigued, he was interested, he was over there. Um, but it's it's something that grows when you get deeper and deeper and deeper, and you realize the possibilities that are there, and you meet people who you might want to become, and there might be this. I mean, there's this sort of thing that happens with with motivation where I think the most uh, the way to explain it best is to say that motivation happens when people want to join an enchanted circle, a circle of people out there in the distance that they see and they want to be in that circle. They want to become that that person. Um, and, and that's the thing to sort of look for and to and to also realize, though, that passion isn't something that's sort of you know, some, some heavenly uh, sunbeam will shine on you and everything's going to be great and you'll know it for sure. But it's something that you kind of grow to, you know, that, that right. kind of develops over time and with work, with a lot of work. And then you, then you realize the, the deep love you might have for, for something. Right. Yeah, it's funny with my brother. His, his passion actually for Japanese came from two things. One, he was a big fan of Japanese animation as a kid. Yep. And he really, he really wanted to be able to watch those cartoons and understand it. And then, too, he really likes Japanese girls. So those were the two motivations. <laughs> and, what's, and what's funny is, I mean, if you saw a picture of what he looks like, like sincerest man, right, long hair, looks like kind of a hippie-ish energy, you would never in a million years guess that this guy speaks Japanese fluently. So I'm sure that any Japanese girl he meets anywhere who hears him speak Japanese fluently is probably going to just be mesmerized. You know, she's, gonna, she's not going to believe what she's seeing in front of her. It's just, just going to be too much. The ultimate motivation. <laughs> so, Daniel, let's talk about this also. People believe in the myth that, oh, my passion is just going to rain down from heaven on me. Another one of the myths that you talk about is this myth of talent and people always thinking, well, they were born this way. They were born with these natural gifts. Yeah, I can't be this. I can't do what he does. I can't be like Michael Jordan or I can't, I can't be a great tennis player like Serena and Venus Williams. They were just, they have these natural gifts that they were born with me. I'm just a dude that goes to work every day. And that's what's been handed to me. Thanks to my genetics. Cause that's yeah. what my parents did. <laughs> so, right. Can we talk about that greatest story ever yeah, told? No, when, it, when it comes, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, one is that genes do matter. I mean, I'm not going to become Michael Jordan as a, as a you know, probably not. Um, <laughs> because in that sport, that happens in the world, in the physical world, and there's mm-hmm. the basket's 10 feet high, and, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the end of the story for, for some people. <laughs> but the question, you know, to sort of say that that is the ultimate factor is, is absolutely wrong. I mean, when you look at any complex skill, anything, when you get away from the raw athletic skills, you do find a massive, massive effect in, of practice, of intensive, deep practice, because that's what's going to build the brain, the fast, accurate brain that's going to execute the skill, whether that skill is a free throw or a chess move or a guitar solo. Um, those are all built. Their complex skills are built through intensive, intensive practice and, and that and motivation and good coaching. So, right. um, 
it's so tempting. It's funny because that story of the magical gift, you know, the magical gift that's given to a certain baby and not to another baby. That story we get told <laughs> over and over and over again. We get told it by our parents. We get told it by books. We get told it in movies. And it's an awesome story. Like, it's really addictively cool, you know, that there are these magical naked babies out there that are going to grow up and paint the Sistine Chapel. You know, <laughs> they're going to grow up and be, you know, Michael Jordan. Um, but scratch the surface of Michael Jordan's story even. Even, that, even he, right, you know, got uh, left off of the school, uh, the school team when he was a sophomore, got really pissed off about it and practiced with his older brother, Larry. Larry was a really good baller. And, and he and Michael went head-to-head, and it really changed him, uh, this experience of both getting cut and practicing super intensively with, with his older brother. And he continued those habits of super intensive practice um, throughout. So the takeaway is no matter who you are, it's the only way forward. You know, it's the only way you have, and, and you never know how far it's going to go. You know, look at all super successful people, and they will all say two things. They'll say, I've worked really hard, which is true. They'll say, I've been lucky, and that's, that's true too. You know, so you can't, you know, you really cannot underrate uh, the power, the power of, of high quality, of one hour of high quality uh, intensive practice to make a change in somebody's life. Right. And even just the center of that entire story right there, there was some struggle. There was some pain right there. There was his desire to be in this circle of people. He wanted, he got kicked off that team and that's what really ticked him off because he was, he wasn't allowed access to that circle. So right. he did everything he could to get back into that circle. And little would he know that he, he will probably be at the helm of that circle later on in his life. And he's still ticked off. You check out his Hall of Fame speech or any of this other stuff that he's done lately where he, yeah. you can still feel the anger. You can feel the, the, the kid who got cut, you know, who's yeah. all those other guys. And it's not pretty. Like, that's one another thing to kind of keep in mind. We glorify these, these, these performers. But a lot of times emotionally, they're difficult people. Like, they're, they're right. You wouldn't want to be married to him. You wouldn't want him as your brother or your father. Um, and so there's something to be said for a balanced approach where you, you have a healthy emotional life, you have good relationships, uh, you maintain those skills along with the other skills that you're trying to build um, and not try to compare yourself to somebody who, through a fluke of, of circumstance, ended up as this uh, you know, angry king of, uh, of a sport. Right. My wife and I were watching, actually, another TED talk. The speaker was talking about you have to have this balance of play, work, and family, and, and not tip more to one or the other. You've got to find that balance between those three things. Otherwise, you are going to be that angry superstar that no one really knows what's going on with your struggles behind closed doors or anything like that. You have someone that focuses so much on work that they end up losing their family in the process. Yep. In fact, she was actually speaking about um, Abraham Lincoln and comparing him to Lyndon B. Johnson. And how Lincoln was this guy, like, of course, he left his legacy throughout time. But just about anyone, when you read history, when they ever got around him, they were always excited when he would come to town because he always had these stories. He's always laughing. And most of the time, we always see pictures of him looking sad. But he had, he had all these struggles growing up and even all the way up to when his mother died. He had all these different struggles. And I think with him, he didn't want to have to go through those struggles and feel that pain again. So he did everything to make sure that he got into those circles that weren't always surrounded by people who were feeling pain and had this darkness going on with them. Whereas Lyndon B. Johnson focused so much on work that he ended up pretty much the family aspect wasn't there. 
And he definitely wasn't having fun while he was in the White House because he was struggling. He just worked like a workhorse. So, like I said, the difference between the two is, like, you have Lincoln who had that balance of work, play, and family, and Johnson didn't. Again, when you look at both of them, you're like, okay, both of them are very significant when it came to civil rights. But it's just a matter of how they both approached it. And Lincoln pretty much said that he did not want to leave this world without leaving something behind and being remembered. And with Johnson, he just wanted to prove himself. And he's like, hey, I'm the best. Look what I've done. I've done what the other president couldn't do. I'm going to finish this job and show that, that I got it done. But he put so much into that, that's pretty much what you remember him for. Yep. But you know what's interesting? And, I mean, I, I, you bring up a really good point, Sincere, and I, and I think about what you're talking about, that balance all the time. But it seems to me that the people that are really exceptional, exceptional at whatever they tried, were not balanced people at all. Like Gandhi, for example, he was considered a horrible father. Like his kids had a lot of issues with him. He was considered one of the greatest leaders ever. But on a, per, on a personal life level, it was a disaster. And then someone like Stephen Jobs, same thing, you know, one of the most brilliant innovators of our time. But he was a real weirdo in terms of a personal life. <laughs> he was, certainly wasn't balanced at all. So it, it's kind of an interesting take. It's like I think to enjoy life fully, you definitely need that balance, no question. But it seems like the people that have the greatest impact on affecting the world are not balanced people at all. What, what would be your take on that, Daniel? What do you think about that? I, I completely agree with it. I think we, we've all got a limited amount of, of time and energy. And if you, um, those people who go and try to change you know, and, and succeed at, at, at sort of changing the world often pay, of, well, I don't know, it's, it's the bargain they make. I mean, yeah. by the price yeah. of, of that greatness, um, is often uh, steep on, on the personal level, and right. um, you know it's 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 a balance that we all kind of do, and I think I think it's wise to think of it in terms of a balance because often in the in the media and you know, we get sold a bill of goods that you know at the top for those people for the Steve Jobs of the world that life is somehow this fabulous dream, and right. it's not. It's it's really yeah. not. Uh, whenever you look a little bit closer. Um, it's no, always, Steve Jobs, I don't think he could enjoy anything. Like if he went on a yacht, he would think about how to ways to make it better. If he was in the hospital, he'd be like, you know what, this place is not efficient at all. If I ran this place, I could do this and that. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think he was probably that happy of a guy at all. But, as, but I think it's because of that that he was so innovative and came up with so many interesting ideas. So it's, it's kind of a toss-up. It's like you don't necessarily want to be that person, but you want people okay. like that to exist out there so we can all benefit I love, in a world. I love living in a world with that guy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's true. It's completely yeah. true. It's, you know, I guess that's why our species has done so well, that we can produce, uh, you know, incredible people like that and, and also produce people who are, you know, who are succeeding in, in quieter, more balanced ways. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm curious about your, your book with, on Lance Armstrong. What motivated you yeah, to, to write that? that? Yeah, and I'm not curious. Did you write about that before all of the drug scandal came out, or was it before? Because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Yeah, no, I did two books, actually. I did, I did oh, okay. one book back in 2004. It's called Lance Armstrong's War. Right. And it was, I spent a year over there um, following around the American cyclists and, and showing the, the light and a lot of the shadow around, around Lance. Um, and so there's a lot of, and when I left finishing that book, I thought oh, I might, there might be another book in here someday. And so sure enough, um, about exactly a year ago, I, I wrote a book with Tyler Hamilton, who was Lance Armstrong's teammate right. called right. The Secret Race. And, and that book tells the full story, you know, no holds barred, the whole 
James Bond craziness uh, that that was going on over there. And it was a big lesson of what happens in a culture when it's win at all costs. You know, when you say we we throw that phrase around a lot, you know, win at all costs. And and Armstrong certainly was one of those um, extraordinary strivers uh, for greatness and in a slightly different culture where it wasn't corrupt. um, He may have gone on to do great things um, as it was, you know, the power of that culture got everybody and it got him and he became the most dominant, successful cheater in the history of sports. Right. right. And I even saw, I think right now in tennis, there's a tennis player right now who pretty much had to opt out of Wimbledon claiming that they had a knee injury. But as a matter of fact, they're being investigated for doping. And mm-hmm. here you have an organization where they basically try to keep it out of the news in order to give the guy a chance. So it's kind of like a catch-22 here because what we've seen with a lot of people, as soon as they become a suspect for doping, all of a sudden their image is tarnished. They're already pretty much they're guilty before proven innocent. And I think what tennis tried to do with this was actually go ahead and start the investigation before they even announced what was going on in order to give this guy a fair shake. But at the same time, it's, it looks very bad. It looks like even the tennis association has something to hide. What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I think, I think it's a problem that we have in the NFL. It's a problem we have in Major League Baseball. And the basic problem is that the same organization that is policing the sport is also promoting the sport. Absolutely. And right. yeah. you've, got, you've got an inherent conflict of interest there. And the same thing, nobody wanted to bust Lance because he was worth millions to the sport. And right. uh, exactly. the same people are making those decisions. So, yeah, it's, it's, a real, it's a real cultural problem. I mean, essentially, it comes down to um, how do you build a culture of athletes um, who – who do not put winning at all costs at the front and who value clean competition. And it's something that everybody, everybody kind of rags on cycling, but cycling is actually getting a little bit farther along because they've had such a problem. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly something that all, all sports are, are facing. Right. I think it's going to be a much bigger problem in the future because steroids and other performance enhancement stuff that's out now, that's nothing compared to what's in the pipeline. You know, we right. have things like gene therapy, stem cell therapy, things like that, which are going to make, I mean, there's, there's some, like Ray Kurzweil has talked about how even the average person who takes this therapy will be able to hold their breath underwater for 10 minutes and run like a world-class sprinter and so forth. So, I mean, it, it's only going to get worse. I mean, imagine when that kind of stuff comes out. The Olympics last year where so many people were in uproar over Oscar Pesteros and his prosthetics and said that he had an advantage over the other runners. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> so, so many people are so afraid of all, any type of technology, and they're saying, oh, he's cheating. He's cheating because they feel like, oh, he's giving him an edge. Let's be honest. When, they, when you talk about it's so funny. When we talk about doping and having an advantage and cheating, and there are so many other ways. I mean, what athlete doesn't use some type of supplement? What, ath- what right, athlete, right. What, you know, we'll talk about different, like, narcotics or drugs that they could be using. You even had, like, Babe Ruth. This dude was a straight-up alcoholic. But at the same right. time, it may have given him a sense where he doesn't have to be as nervous before a game. That's he can right. relax. <laughs> and he can just, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows how that was helping him? Who knows? But no one would think of that because there was alcohol, and it's going to make him, his reaction time a lot slower. Well, obviously not. He became yeah. one of the greatest home run kings ever. And you had this argument in um, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Mike and I are a big MMA fan where you've had so many guys who get away with using TRT at certain levels, but someone like Nick Diaz, who has medical marijuana, gets suspended for a year because he had traces of it in his, in his system. How is that really going to enhance him? 
Well, I'll try to say that, well, if he's in jiu-jitsu, if he's getting into a hold or whatever, he can be able to relax a lot more. They give him an advantage. I'm like, are you serious right now? Have you hung, have you hung around stoners before? <laughs> really? The real yeah, thing I, I always, comes I always out like to me. smoke a big joint before a fight. Exactly. <laughs> Helps you get relaxed. <laughs> yeah, so what Mike and I always talk about on this show when it comes down to steroids or any type of so-called, quote-unquote, performing enhancing drug, what it comes down to, it may help you out 5 or 10%, but at the end of the day, how are you just going to take away what these folks have done? And like I said, we're not promoting the use of it. What we're saying is, how are you just going to take away that other 90% of work they put in to get to that level where they are? Yep. No, it, it, it is a super complicated issue. Um, and, and the problem is, there's a bunch of problems, you know, that, that you're touching on exactly right. You know, but, you know, drugs affect everybody in a different way. But in the end, what is sports for? I, you know, I think... Sports is not about everybody being fair. It's about everybody following the rules, whatever those rules are. If the rules are right. you can't, you have to touch first base, you can't just be within six inches of first base. You have to touch it. And, yeah. and the same goes with all these substances. If they say you can't have orange juice before a race, you can't have orange juice. You, know, you right. should follow those rules. So, um, and I think you know, it's interesting to see the way younger people are responding to you know, how they're approaching sport these days. You know, marathon times are going down because not as many people are running for time. They're running right. for enjoyment. You know, they're running for fellowship or they're running for belonging or they're running for fun. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, I think the sense of what sport is is, uh, is maybe evolving, you know, away from worshiping somebody who's necessarily, the, you know, the strongest and the fastest and more toward worshiping people who do stuff the right way or in a stylish way that we appreciate. Yeah, and what's so funny about the ones that were actually establishing those rules, as we kind of hit on a minute ago, are the exact same ones who are also kind of like, well, since you're our golden boy and you are putting a lot of money in our bank accounts, we'll let you get away with it this time. Right. But right. Yeah, be yeah, careful. Yeah. Don't, don't make us look bad. And if you get busted, we're going to absolve ourselves from the situation. It's almost like they're almost like they put you out there like an undercover cop. And the thing is, if you end up going undercover and then you have to use the drugs and you have to kill someone other just not to blow your cover – it's just almost like the, like the organization will be like, well, if you do those things, we're not going to sit there and say that we backed you on that. In fact, we're actually going to leave you out there high and dry by yourself. But if you can do that and get us the, the suspect and really take this case over the top, then, hey, man, we'll give you a hero's welcome. It's almost like one of those type of TV shows like that. It's true. It's true. No, it's, it's weird. You'll check out the secret race and tell me what you think. It's, it's about when you take Definitely. it to the ultimate level, it's, uh, it's completely nuts. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely going to check that out. Well, we know you have to go. I just wanted to ask you one last question, and then we'll plug some of your work in and, and send you on your way. But uh, one of the things you talk about in your book that I think is very interesting for a lot of parents to take heed of is the importance of praising children for their efforts rather than innate qualities. Because we hear parents all the time say to their children, oh, you're so smart or you're so this. And they're, praise, they're praising quality rather, innate quality rather than the efforts. Why yep. is it more important to praise effort? Here's the deal. When you praise someone for their ability, when you say you are a genius at math, you're actually diminishing their willingness to take a risk. Right, right. If they're going to get better, they're going to have to take a risk. And if you say you're a genius at tennis, you are so great, um, they are less willing, and experiments show this, to go out on the edge and struggle because they want to preserve their status. Like we're status-driven creatures. We want to – if you tell me I'm a genius, I, I don't want to prove you wrong, man. I want to stay the genius. So um, parents who say 
I really love the way you tried out there. Good effort is you have a much more profound and positive effect on your kid than kids who, than parents who who sort of are trumpeting their, that their kids are geniuses. Right. Right. Oh, and then one final thing actually is: have you ever looked into nutrition supplementation or diet and how that affects a lot of the things you talk about on the talent code, such as improving the the learning process? The you know, efficiency, things like that. I have, well, I have a bit. There's, there's mixed uh, things about you know having uh, you know DHA and fish oils and things right, like essential fatty acids. Yeah. Is, is, uh, is is both pro and con. One thing I saw right. that way was a lot of the neuroscientists that I visited. Several of them took essential fatty acids. They had bottles of them on their desk. Huh. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You know, yeah. the experiments are sort of saying, well, could be this, could be that, and. Um, but the people who are who are in this, um, a couple of them anyway, were, were taking them daily. So I, I took that to heart. Yeah, very interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're you're a really fascinating guy to talk to. You're obviously yeah. very passionate about what you do. So it's a real pleasure chatting with you for a while. And where can people find more information about you, your website, etc.? Yeah, you bet. If anybody wants to go to thetalentcode.com, uh, thetalentcode, all one word, dot com, they'll find links. They can send me an email or, or uh, make a comment. Or you know, I keep a pretty active blog on there, and so I'd love love when people reach out and connect. And um, I just want to say thanks so much for having me. You guys do a great a great job. It's been a, a total pleasure spending time with you. Thank well, you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm definitely going to check out your book on Lance Armstrong and a couple other things. But I encourage everyone to check out the town talent code. It's a fun read. I've read it a few times. It's always something new I pick up each time, and it'll really change your perspective on developing mastery in any skill. So I think people will get a lot out of this. All right. Thanks a lot, Daniel. We really appreciate it, man. Thanks so much, sincere. Thanks a lot, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. See you guys. And again, folks, that's Daniel Cole, author of the Talent Code, and what an interesting guy he is. Really? Uh, I love you can feel it. Yeah, can you feel it? Oh, so you can hear the passion, yeah. man. We first yeah. got on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right away. Some, yeah. Sometimes it seems like you know, some of our guests get a little bit of a build up. It starts to feel like that first date where they're like, right, all right, right. Who, like, who are Robert, these two? Robert who are these King two guys, and who are their audience, and who am I talking to here, and who's right. gonna who's gonna receive this message? And then they loosen up, and then they go for it. But Daniel just no, came Robert. right in, like, hey, <laughs> he's like very passionate. Let's talk about this. Uh, he's all on it. He's all on it. Robert Greene was like that, what you're talking about. He, he reminded me of like talking to my dad. You know, my dad's kind of a reserved guy. Like when he first came on our show, I was like, does this guy even want to be on it? And then <laughs> after we asked him a couple of questions and he got going, you know, then he was willing to go. Like I think he said he wanted to keep it to like 40 minutes or so, and we had him yeah. on like 80 minutes, and we probably could have kept going. So I think it's like you said, some people, they take a minute to loosen up. But uh, Daniel, like before we even started recording, I was like, all right, this guy's going to be fun to talk to you. Because oh, yeah. Put, he was ready to go. He's very and passionate. I watched, some of his, I watched some of his interviews on YouTube where some of the people that were interviewing him, I've known of some of them, where yeah. they weren't the most exciting people in the world, but he still went all in with it and almost made these people look exciting. Almost. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the side of a guy who's really passionate about what he does. Exactly. Because if you can make a boring interviewer look good, then, exactly. <laughs> then, then you're doing a good job. You know, it's funny, I got some funny feedback about Bruce Buffer, our, our guest last week. Uh, one guy mentioned that he really enjoyed our, our conversation with Bruce, but he thought that Bruce was a guy who really likes himself a lot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know what's funny? I, I thought the same thing when I went back and listened to it, and I don't mean that in a bad, I don't mean that in a bad way. Like he was, I didn't feel that Bruce was really arrogant. 
but he's definitely a guy who, who talks about his, his – he's definitely very proud of his accomplishments. During that interview, I even just brought that up, <laughs> where his father's – where his upbringing and, and his father, where all that played into who he is today. And that was one of the reasons why, because I was picking that up. And here's <laughs> yeah. the deal. Like I said, that's not a bad thing. I, no, it isn't. That was, it, it would be one of those situations. I feel like Bruce's father would be one of those parents that Daniel was talking about. I feel like Bruce's father was that parent who praised his son's efforts and not their accomplishments. And I think that played a big part. Because, I mean, let's talk about, I mean, let's think about this. In the book, his father's got him blindfolded and taking apart a gun and putting it back together. He's teaching him how to play cards and teaching if you're going to gamble, use your mind, don't bet on horse racing, where you're pretty much putting everything into the hands of someone else. Put yourself in a situation where you use your own skills. So what he's doing right there, and even as a reserve man, what he's doing, he was trumpeting his son's efforts by doing those things. So that plays a big part. And guess what? Now, I mean, there wasn't pretty much any venture that he that Bruce went after that he felt like, uh, like, okay, I'm going to go after this. If I mess up, cool, I'm going to keep going. But I'm not going to also put all my ducks in, in a row here. I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for this. I'm passionate about this. So why can't I be successful with this? And if it right. fails, okay, get over it and move on. So I think that plays a big part of it. When you start treating your kids like, oh, you're, you're the greatest at this, 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 and this, you're setting them up for failure. No, so you're absolutely right. You can hear in his voice, and like I said, I'm, I'm not even mad at him, dude. No, no, the thing about Bruce is that here is my attitude, man. People that are successful, they believe in themselves. So obviously, exactly. you're, gonna think, obviously you're gonna think highly of yourself. You're not gonna wake up and say I'm a loser, and then go out there and do successful things. So I, I think a lot of people feel like if you're ambitious and you go for stuff, you're gonna come up as arrogant. You know what? Who gives a fuck, man? Are you kidding me? I was like, you should, if, if you're really passionate about stuff and, and some people perceive you that way, well, that's too bad for them. Now, they can go ahead and keep their, their lame-ass job that they probably hey, have. Look, I, say it every week, I say it every week. Those people are simply projecting because they don't that's have the confidence in themselves, and they try to boomerang it on you. It's kind of like this. Like, like I feel my testosterone booster is by far the best option out there, right? That's not just me making up stuff to sell it. I really feel it is. That's why I put all the money and time into making it and putting it out right. there. So when I wrote the ad copy for it, yeah, I'm going to promote it as a great product because I think it is a great product. Imagine if I just said, hey, guys, I think I've got something that's pretty good here. I'm not sure. You know, it might be good. might not be great. may work for you. may not. Give it a shot. Let me know what you think. No one's going to buy it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That shows no confidence at all whatsoever. It's like, well, I mean, right. dude, if you don't believe in it, why should I? Yeah, exactly. So, so it's, it's kind of like that. It's like, yeah, I mean, it, 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 and I don't think the reader was, or the listener rather, was saying that he thought Bruce was arrogant. He just, he just said, kind of in a joking way, this guy, right. this guy thinks very highly of himself. Ha ha. And I was like, yeah, you know, he does. I, I, I picked that up as well. But here's the, <laughs> the reality: is man, is if you don't think highly of yourself, then don't expect anyone else to. I can tell you that exactly. much. So it, it kind of starts with yourself. You and know. this guy's living, you know, here's a guy that's living the life that he chose. Right he's, right. he's living on his own terms. So guess what? That confidence is going to shine in your voice when you're living life by your own terms. If right. someone's living the life someone else is throwing at them and saying this is how it has to be no matter what you think, then, of course, the confidence is not going to be in your voice because you're living a lie. And you're miserable. And there's no passion there. So right. there's the difference. A couple, a couple of listener questions, and we can just bang these out. One is, someone read uh, my, my information on brain health optimization, which really ties into a lot of what Daniel talked about today. And there, there's four main neurotransmitters that you want to optimize for brain health that actually improves your physical performance as well, not just your brain health for the sake of brain health, but it'll actually carry over to improving your physical performance. And the question was in 
relation to the second neurotransmitter, which is acetylcholine, which is basically our memory and reaction time neurotransmitter. This is the neurotransmitter that allows you to learn and process information as well as recall it. So when someone has Alzheimer's, for example, they're very deficient in acetylcholine, and that affects their ability to recall information and utilize it. So this is asking, besides, I already went through the supplementation and the information, so he wasn't asking about that, but just different strategies you can use, such as maybe mental games and so forth, to improve mm -hmm. your acetylcholine receptor sensitivity. So things like playing chess, uh, luminosity.com has a lot of very interesting games you can use. And I mean, if, if you want to take it to a really high level, you can try having three girlfriends at the same time. Because now, you, now, now, now you have to keep track of all the lives. Well, you always have to be the top of your game then, buddy. First of all, you've got to remember all now, your lives. Now, 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 if you really want to take it to a high level, three girlfriends in the town you live in. You can start off with three girlfriends where they're in different parts of the world, right? And then, and then, and then gradually gravitate towards three girlfriends in the same town, and then, hey, maybe even in the same apartment complex or your neighborhood if you really want to take it up. And I'll tell you what, your ability to handle cortisol will be affected tremendously as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going you're gonna to have fun every time you go through a revolving door. Because you know? oh, the ability to keep track of all of those lies and not cross over. <laughs> all right, folks, I'm joking about that, okay? I don't want to get any misogynistic oh, emails God. telling me of, of what a what – a, a misogynist I am, or or how I'm encouraging men to go cheat on their girlfriends. I'm joking around, folks. Okay. On the they, flip side of that, that and I was about to joke, Mike. I was just about to say, on the flip side of that, I know so many more women who are much better at that game than men will ever be. <laughs> no and, and this no is coming from my mom. My mom told me from the very beginning, to my, nobody is a bigger player in the game than a woman, and men need to understand that. And once you understand that, you understand women, and you will treat them a lot better. Right. So, and you know, most, most men think they're these big players and they're like, ah, I'm getting over on these women. A lot of times you're not. <laughs> they're letting, they're letting you just like your mom used to do. When your mom knew you were messing up, your dad beat your ass. But a lot of times your mom lets you keep going because you were her baby boy. And I think that's what gets a lot of men in trouble once they grow up. They think right. they can keep doing it and they think they're dating their mom. So <laughs> a lot of women are like, no, they will cut you in your sleep. So uh, Think and Grow Rich talks about how Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich says a smart woman gives the guy the illusion that he's in control. Exactly. And, you know, that that kind of sums it up right there, man. And that, uh, yeah, yeah we're, you don't have, you're not as in control as you think you are. Just, uh, well, don't, I mean, don't think, let's, don't, let's be honest. But honestly, and, and even if you're not directly being affected by a woman, everything we do, we do it for women. Let's just talk about men doing that. I mean, when we go out and get the car and we try to go out and get the, the, the big bucks and all this, we're not showing off for our friends. If I'm, I'm not trying to go and get, like, the baddest Harley or the Ferrari just so I can impress you, Mike. I could give a rat. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I'm not well, trying, that, to, have good, good I'm not trying to make you feel secure to be my friend, Mike. I'm trying to make, my, I'm trying to make the woman I'm with feel a lot better. So everything, everything a man does, even when we're trying to get power, it's not to impress other men. It's to impress women. That's what we've always done. So... Guess what, guys? Women are always in control. Even when we think that we're in control, we're not. We're yeah, not. Thing, thing so now we're going to get hate mail now, Mike, from all the men. Oh, like, yeah. oh, you guys hate men. Where's your compassion? <laughs> You're man bashing. What's up with that? <laughs> you can utilize all that stuff to your advantage. And this, this is why I say that you know, sex drive is so important for male health, because if a guy has really low testosterone and dopamine, which are the two main components of your optimal sex drive. And sex drive is really a creative drive. So it's not just about trying to go out and get a lot of women and so forth. I mean, that's obviously a big component of it, wanting to have sex with women. 
but the, at the same time, it's also that creative drive that pushes you, as you said, to want to achieve a lot of different arenas. And I think that's why when a guy's testosterone plummets and his estrogen surges, where he's estrogen dominant now, that that'll make you basically psychotic. I mean, you'll just be moody. You'll have no drive to want to achieve anything. You're grouchy now. You're always irritable. You're just a miserable person to be and be around. And that's why it's so important for men to keep their testosterone to estrogen ratio optimal. And that means that estrogen is not too low or too high, or testosterone is not too low or too high. You want to have a ratio of the two. Because if estrogen goes way too low, you're going to start having joint pain and memory issues, and your sex drive and sex function will go down the drain. A lot of people don't realize this, but if you don't have enough estrogen, you will not be able to get an erection. Your erection health will plummet. And you'll, 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 feel, like, you'll feel like a unit because a lot of guys who take testosterone and then they take uh, aromatase inhibitors like uh, Rimidex, which can drive estrogen down to non-detectable levels, they feel right. horrible. They don't feel good at all. So you need to have the balance between the two. A lot of times guys feel that the goal is to get estrogen as low as possible and testosterone as high right. as possible. And it's really more a 50 to 1 ratio of testosterone to estrogen that you want. So you, you definitely want to have a balance of the two. And that, that also, it actually brings up another reader question, which is, what do I think of DEM? And DEM is from cruciferous vegetables, and it's often marketed as an estrogen blocker or an estrogen control yeah. product, and it's never been shown to be either. What DEM is useful for is improving the ratio between good and bad estrogen. That's 4 and 16 hydroxyesterone to 2 hydroxyesterone, so 4 and 16 being the bad estrogen. Now, this is a very useful supplement for women who have a high incidence of breast cancer in their family and men with prostate cancer because that often comes from a very poor ratio of too much bad estrogen, not enough good estrogen. So in that particular case, something like DIM can be useful, but that's something you want to determine by a 24-hour urine test is the most accurate Yeah, I was just about to say that because about two years ago, my doctor as well pretty much prescribed my dose for DHEA. He put me on DIM as well. You know, it's funny, when DIM pretty much became really popular to say like five, six, seven years ago. That's what it's all about, estrogen blocker, estrogen blocker. So, right. of course, you know, I bought into the myth back then, like, oh, I got to make sure I don't have high estrogen. I got to make sure I put estrogen, de- estrogen down to the lowest possible ratio I can. But as you get older and then just, like I say, just being around you and learning from you these past few years about this, I realized, okay, it's very, very important. So one of the reasons why he even suggested that I started taking them was to prevent possibility of prostate cancer or anything like right. that. Right. Hey, it's in my family. That was one of the reasons why, because he asked me pretty much my diet, do I consume a lot of cruciferous vegetables? And I had to tell him, I was like, look, dude, honestly, I'm like, I love cauliflower. I get sick of broccoli. I mean, when you spend your late teen years and you're going on that bodybuilder type diet, yeah. The last thing you want is grilled chicken breast, broccoli, <laughs> and asparagus. You know, you know, the funny thing too is even, <laughs> even brown if you rice, do, you're old. Even if you do eat a lot of that stuff, you're not, you're not, you're not getting enough bioavailable damn no, broccoli or cauliflower or bro- broccoli, cauliflower. What's the other one that's really high in it? It's a, it's a vegetable I hate. Never eat it. Uh, Brussels sprouts. That's Brussels sprouts. It. So those three are, are, are high in indole 3 carbonyl, but that, that dim is basically a concentrated Amount, it's basically, basically right. DIM is basically concentrated in the biochemicals that are good for managing this estrogen, much more so than indole 3 carbonyl. So you're not going to, you can do all the broccoli in the world, you're not going to get enough that it has any meaningful effect on estrogen metabolism. So I mean, that, that yeah, so, I, I, not to cut you off though, you were continuing with the line there. Yeah, and most importantly, what Mike just said, don't just say, okay, well, I'm going to go and go on bodybuilding.com and order some DIM. No, no, no. What you need to do is take a urine test, take a 24-hour urine test, 
and then go to your doctor and go over a doctor that's qualified to discuss this with you, not just a general practitioner. Yeah, so, don't ask me. Don't ask us where to get the test, folks. This is something you get through a, a practitioner. It's not just something you buy online and, and pick into a jug and send it in and, and <laughs> you interpret the results. You need someone to help you interpret this because the 24-hour yeah, you see those numbers, you're going to yeah, be like, oh, what is this? It's, you know how many estrogen metabolites there are? There are like hundreds of them. I mean, you're going to look at this, and it's going to be like a big maze to you. So you want to have someone who can interpret that for you. Don't just buy the kit and, and think you're going to figure it out all on your own. You know, it kind of goes yeah. back to what Daniel Cole was talking about with coaching and, and, and mastery. It, it falls back into that one. Yeah, because trust me, you get those results back, that thing is going to look like a mind map on steroids. Right, right. No pun intended. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody's going to have to walk you through it and tell you what all that means because you look at those numbers, you're like, oh, well, what negative 400, what, what is that? What? I'm dying. No, you're not. <laughs> so. I mean, but back to this reader's question is that in terms of estrogen, natural aromatase inhibitors, there's a supplement called Myomin by Chi-Health. Just go to chihealth.com. You just type in Myomin, M-Y-O-M-I-N in Google. You'll, get, you'll probably get sent to a website called energeticnutrition.com, and they have a ton of information on it. I've met the formulator of Myomin at a convention I went to one time. Very interesting guy, Dr. Chi. And that's a great product. I've used it on and off since 2004, and it, it, it'll cut your estrogen in half. You know, it's a very powerful estrogen blocker, estrogen control product, estrogen metabolizer, whatever you want to call it. It's not going to lower it too low like some of the drugs do, like Arimidex. So I think it's right. something that old men and women can take safely. Women who are having any kind of menopausal issue, it's a great product to get on. Now, talk to your doctor about it, but I, it's something you're definitely, definitely worth looking into. If you're a guy and you're holding a lot of pec fat, stomach fat, and lower body fat, you don't have to do a test. You're estrogen dominant. And if, if, you know, just basically, if you're even wondering whether you're estrogen dominant or not, you probably are. <laughs> it kind of falls into that category. You, know, you cry during an episode of Sex and the City. Two, two, problem, two problems right there. One, you're actually watching the show. And two, you're actually being affected by it emotionally. That, those are bad signs. <laughs> and, and, you watched that. You tried watching Spartacus, but you thought it was too violent. You know that. <laughs> hey man, first of all, this show is too bloody. There's too many sex scenes in this show, man. <laughs> <laughs> too many hot girls with no clothes on. Terrible. But uh, yeah, and so I mean, myomin is great. There's another one called Triazole. That's T-R-I-A-Z-O-L-E, and that's the name made by a guy named Matt Cahill, who runs a company called Driven Sports. That's a very good estrogen control product. It's quite a bit more powerful than myomin. So the only issue with triazole, even though it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any drugs in it, it's all herbal based. It can drive estrogen a little bit too low, where you find that your frequency of urination goes way up, start getting a little bit of joint pain, your sex drive and mood actually plummet. You know that's a sign that your estrogen has gone too low, and that can happen with that product. So I would, I would generally recommend my men to most men and women because I've never heard of that side effect even at higher dosages, and it is very effective at cutting estradiol in half, improving the testosterone to estrogen ratio. My testosterone booster has bovine in it, which is also an estrogen blocker, and it also has metal roots in it, which helps clear out estrogen in the prostate. So it's, uh, those are the additional benefits of taking that product. There's another herb from India, which I'm not going to mention because I'm working on an estrogen control product, and that's going to be the main ingredient after I after I get some test batches out, you know, sincere, I'll send you some to try. I'm going to send out a few batches to some other friends of mine to give a shot. That stuff is awesome. Not only does it increase, not only does it 
have a estrogen blocking effect, it actually increases DHT, which is a very misunderstood male hormone, which is way more powerful than testosterone. If you don't have enough DHT, you don't have male characteristics, basically. You're not gonna, you're not gonna turn into a man as a baby without that DHT surge. So DHT is very important, totally misunderstood. Most people blame it for prostate enlargement and baldness. Baldness is genetic proclivity. Okay, you can have DHT and have a full head of hair. I know for a fact because I have high DHT and I've had it for a long time. My hairline starts in the middle of my forehead. I look like Eddie Munster with the shaved head. So I don't have, I'm not going bald anytime soon. I'm almost 40, no sign of baldness. My hair is super thick. So it's not just high DHT. And that's why a lot of drugs that men get on, like Propecia and so forth, are mm-hmm. terrible because what they do is they're trying to preserve their hair, but it totally shuts down DHT production. So as a result, their sex drive plummets because DHT is actually more important than, t- than testosterone for erection health and sex drive. And you're so, so basically, yeah, you might preserve some of your hair, but you're going to have zero sex drive. And that's one of the biggest side effects for Propecia. I get people emailing me probably on a weekly basis that are telling me that they've suffered that side effect. They read an article about the importance of optimal levels of DHT and how shutting it down causes such issues. And, it's, and that drug, Propecia, causes a lot of problems with that. So for people that, are, that, are, that want to have a hair protection product, there's a product called Dercos, that's D-E-R-C-O-S, and you can get it at a website called antiagingsystems.net. Probably find it on Amazon.com as well. I've seen a few people selling it. It's basically a gel that you put in your scalp. And what it does is it protects your hair from DHT receptors in your head, but it's not going to shut down DHT anywhere else. So it's, while, while I don't feel that high DHT is the reason why everyone goes bald, it's a genetic predisposition, DHT does affect people that do have a genetic predisposition towards going bald, do have DHT receptors, receptors that have an affinity for the hair follicles where it's going to cause some hair loss. So using that product will protect your hair from that DHT, but not affect the rest of your body. Now, in terms of DHT and prostate enlargement and stuff like that, that's more from too much of the bad estrogens we've talked about. So that's kind of beyond the scope of today's show. Like, what I would like to do is bring on an expert rather than just me as a researcher talk about this. I, I, and I know a guy that I've contacted who wrote a great book on testosterone who, who really got into the myth of the connection between DHD and prostate cancer and prostate enlargement. So I really want to bring him on the show, and we'll talk about this quite a bit more. So that's just one of those themes we'll get into. But the next question we had from a reader for both of us was, what do we think about kettlebell pressing in terms of how it affects barbell pressing? Will it improve it? Is it a good supplement? And I, I, I kind of have a mixed review mm. for that. Here's my take on it real quick is that my, my attitude is kettlebell overhead pressing is a much different skill set than barbell yeah. overhead pressing. It's a totally different groove. It's a totally different feel. From a superficial level, it looks like the same thing, right? You're putting weights overhead. But believe me, the way you get very good at kettlebell pressing is a totally different technique. You're keeping the elbows in, you're dropping the shoulders, you're driving off the body, you're, you're taking it, like you're opening a window, putting the bells behind your head. It, it's a much different feel than, a, than the way a barbell feels. Also, because you have an independent weight in each arm, you can find a groove that's most comfortable for you while with barbell pressing, if you have any shoulder issues, it's really going to aggravate that. That's what a lot of people find. So my take is that if you do both, if you do both in a training cycle, such as barbell press on Monday, kettlebell press on Thursday, 
there can be some complementary synergy where one gets one will help you get better at the other. But let's say you want to get really good at one, you're going to have to focus on that one more than the other. So if I want to get right. really good at kettlebell pressing, I focus on that and, and barbell pressing becomes a supplement to my kettlebell pressing. And I find that TNT cables, lifeline TNT cables, or have a way more precise transfer to improving kettlebell pressing than barbell pressing does. And if you're someone, let's say you go six months doing kettlebell pressing and then you go back to the barbell press, don't be surprised when you find that the numbers have dropped significantly. I mean, I've actually worked up to pressing heavier kettlebells than I can barbell press. And then I worked up to, to getting my barbell press way higher than what I can kettlebell press. And when I went back to kettlebell pressing, I was way weaker. So I'm speaking right. personally, I'm not someone who has these magical transfers that like marketing hyperbole would like you to believe. I get good at what I focus on. So that right. you can you can get both you can get good at both simultaneously, but But you won't be great at both. Exactly, exactly. You have to you have to pick your focus and don't expect to just get really good at one and have that transfer to the other. That's my personal experience. I mean no, other I totally agree. I totally agree. And I actually experienced that this past week as I'm training now for a kettlebell competition right. and during my GPP portion of my training, Ken had programmed Ken Blackburn, our friend Ken Blackburn, who's also my coach with my GS training. He programmed in the GPP for me to throw in some overhead pressing with kettlebell, so 224. So since I'd already done, I was already, I just finished doing barbell shrugs right before that. So I was like, eh, since I'm right here at the barbells, I'll go ahead and do some barbell presses with the same 135 pounds, which I pretty much was tossing up all summer long. But the fact of the matter is, it is now, at the time of this recording, it's October. Summer's over, and it's been a month, and I've been focusing more on GS at this time. It pretty much called for 10 sets of five, and I don't know, first of all, it was just insanity for me to even think about that, especially after the snatch that I'd already done previously before that. When I did the first two reps, that 135 pounds on that barbell, it just felt like 225 or 315. It felt like way different than the way it felt a month and a half, two months ago. So, again, because I changed my focus. And another thing is what we're looking at when we start talking about just the aesthetics of what your body is doing when you're doing these two lifts, let's look at your hand positions also right. compared to a barbell and to a kettlebell. Your, hand position, your hands yeah. are going to change. You're not going to sit there and have the same hand position with the barbell that you're having with the kettlebells if you're lifting those kettlebells correctly. Now, if you're sitting there doing overhead pressing with the kettlebells and your wrists are bent and the, and the handles are you, – you're holding it right <laughs> in the center of the handles of the bell and it's hanging off – First of all, you're putting your forearm through so much hell. And it's right. really going to be hard to lift heavy bells when you're really stressing your forearms by lifting yeah. like that. You, you don't want to try to press a barbell like you would kettlebells or a Oh, hell no. You know, I mean, can, can you imagine trying to press a barbell the way we press a kettlebell? That would oh, be yeah, you know, sit there with almost a false <laughs> grip overhead. Well, yeah, first, yeah. Of all, first of all, <laughs> there'll be a lot of dead people in the gym, okay? A lot of, a lot of barbells cracking some skulls open right there. Yeah, that would be just painful. And another thing is your arm position as well when you're lifting both of them. So right. one thing about those bells, you've got to make sure those bells are directly over your shoulders. So right. you're going to have a little bit more of a narrow stance with your hand position overhead when you're locked out over here with the kettlebells, right. whereas you can, get, you can spread those hands a little bit wider when you have a barbell. You just, you're not going to have kettlebells out into a wide position when you have an overhead lockout, as you would in, in some cases with a barbell. I'm with you on that one. I, I don't see, in my situation, I don't really see – too much carryover for the two and trying to substitute one for the other and try to get really great at one to improve the other. My thing is, like Mike just said, if you want to get great at kettlebell pressing, press kettlebells overhead. Do that. Focus on that. Get better with that. And what you really ought to focus on here 
is your explosiveness and work on your bump, bumping those bells off your chest yeah. and not just press them overhead. So actually start incorporating more of your body in order to get the kettlebells overhead and quit just depending on just using your arms to press the bells overhead. Yeah, I would say really start putting, like incorporate it. the lats in the back and your glutes yeah. and leaning back. I mean, people see Mike and they'll see myself and they'll see us lifting overhead. And from someone that's not lifting with kettlebells from the outside looking in, they look at us pressing. They're like, oh, my God, he's going to hurt his back. Look at him. That's just bad for the back. Look how he's leaning back like that. But let's look at where the bells are as I'm leaning back. Basically, I'm getting out of the way of the bells as they go up. So the right. bells are still going from 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock up above. I'm the one that's leaning back on 10 o'clock. So that's the key concept here, not to sit there and bring the bells back with me as I lean back and then try to get them over my shoulders. So the thing is, the bells go from 6 to 12 as I lean out of the way and ignite my glutes. So therefore, I can really, first of all, really utilize my lats and really open up my chest and really get that good inhale as I'm pressing the bells overhead and then, boom, peek through once you lock out with a slight arch in the small of my back right there and, and get two quick breaths. And then I'll rise up and absorb the shock of the bells coming down. So all these mechanics right here are not what you necessarily do together with a barbell. So there's some of the difference right there. Yeah, like with kettlebells, you tend to press out and then back. So it's almost, it almost mm-hmm. starts off like it's an incline press, and then it locks out behind your head so that it's over your center of mass. Right. Now, with a barbell, it's going to go straight up. You want to press the bar close to your face. Like the bar should be right in front of your nose as it goes overhead, as opposed exactly. to pressing out the way you would on a bench press or incline press and then try to press back. So with the kettlebell press, I find that I can shift my legs forward and bring the pecs in a lot more than I would on mm-hmm. a barbell press. And then also, like you said, you can get that chest bump, which to me, a, a really good kettlebell military press should feel like an upper body push press. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not using a leg drive, but you're letting your shoulders drop and then bumping it off your chest. Exactly. And theoretically, you could do that with the barbell, but it, it doesn't really feel comfortable. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just, it's just not the same effect. So it's, it's not it's, fun. Yeah, I mean, the old-time Olympic lifters used to do something similar where they would drop their shoulders and press the barbell overhead. But it, it got the, the reason why they took the lift out of the competition is that it, it just started becoming more and more of a – of a push press where it was hard to determine if it's even a strict military press anymore because it's like look did his knees slightly bend look how far he's leaning back i mean some of these guys would lean so far back that it looked like they were doing a bench press standing up <laughs> and it, it just got to the point where they're like forget it this is too hard to judge so it's like when i do a barbell military press i tend to be very strict right no 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 chest bump or anything like that i, I just press it strict close to the face overhead lock it out like you're opening up a window, sticking your head out is what my coach exactly. Mark Belke would refer to it. Also, with the barbell military press, you tend to keep your elbows in front rather than mm-hmm. close to the body. With the kettlebells, you're pressing off of the body. With a good barbell military press, the elbows are out in front of you, and that's what allows yeah. you to press in that straight line. Because both hands are connected to a bar, so there's no benefit to really going in an arch. You just want to go from point A to point B, straight line. Kettlebells, you, you shift your legs forward, you can sit back a little bit, and now you can press out, bring in the strong pec muscles, lats, shoulders, triceps, and then make sure that the bells finish overhead. So you can press out where the bells are in front of your face, but you want to make sure that they're locked out in your center of mass, so your entire body is supporting it overhead. And then, like Sincere said, when you drop the bells, it, it's a zero negative. So you, you just basically drop the bells, come up on your toes, catch it, and then reabsorb, reset, go to the next one. 
to tell you the truth, I, I feel like the, the kettlebell, I, I'm a big fan of pressing, as a lot of people know, but I feel like the kettlebell press is made for my body type. It just feels really good. So that's one of those moves I can get really good at. The barbell press, on the other hand, is, is not really made for my body type. I mean, I do it because I think it's a good move and it's a good challenge, but I, I have much greater, I'm much more likely to get really good at kettlebell pressing than I am at a barbell press. It's just not a good fit for my body type. Ironically, yeah, you I'm, look I'm at our, like, like our arm span, it kind of, that's where the difference is. Right, right. And if you have really long reach, it becomes a pain in the butt pretty much when you're doing overhead press with barbells. Right. Because first of all, you're kind of losing your center of power by your hands being separated out just a little bit more away from your shoulders, away right. from your center of mass. Whereas yeah. kettlebells, when you center everything right down the middle where you're pretty much looking like a cylinder yeah. from lockout down to your feet, then you've got a little bit more stabilization going on right here, especially when you have that long reach. And that's when also because if you are someone that does have a long reach, that's where the whole absorption thing really becomes very important in rising up and meeting the bells as you're bringing them down and absorbing the shock right there. Otherwise, you're just sitting there like a sitting duck if you have a long reach and you have long arms, and you're just sitting there flat-footed waiting for the bells to drop down. Oh, it just feels like there's dropping boulders on your chest every time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then another, another one, it's not really even a question, it's just something that, I've, I've, that has worked really well for my business recently. It's just a new customer service initiative I've done. So what I'm doing now is when, whenever someone buys, let's say, my testosterone booster or recovery oil or both, I'll send them an email just thanking them for buying it and then just remind them of the best way to take it. And it's a form letter. You know, I'm, not, I'm not writing a letter from inception for every single person. Right. But it, it is something that I'm, I am personally sending to each person who buys the product. And then when they respond to that, of course, it's a personal reply from me. It's not another form letter. So this is not like those customer service emails you get where it says, do not reply to this. <laughs> it's like, thanks a lot for buying this, but if you have any questions, too bad. Because if you, if you try to reply to this email, it just goes to infinity land. It goes to nowhere, Bill. So, and then what, what's happened with this is so many people respond back, and they're, they're just so delighted that they're getting a, a personal email from me. But I'm also getting a lot of people that are repeat customers saying, oh, thanks a lot for the email, and I, this is the second time I bought it. The stuff is awesome. So I'm getting a lot more testimonials to add to my website. But also, what I, what, I, what I really want to instill with my customers is the fact that I actually care about their progress, and that's why I'm reaching out to them. I'm thinking, you know, what can I do to make sure they get the best out of the products they're buying for me? Because I have a great lifestyle, and I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for people supporting what I do. So I don't take that lightly. So if someone buys a product from me, I want them to know that. And what happens also is that when someone takes the product now, they, they don't feel like they're alone. So let, let's say they take a cap of the testosterone booster and they're like, huh, I feel kind of funny. I, I wonder what's going on here. They don't just have to sit there and think about that. They can shoot me an email and say, hey, I'm feeling this. Is this normal? What should I do about it? And I can give them some personalized advice to make sure they get the best response out of it. Because I've had a few people who said, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this testosterone booster. And then I delve further. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And then we were able to determine the reason why, and then I got them on the right course, and they're getting great results. Now, imagine if I never reached out to them. These are the people who probably would have just sent it back for a refund. because They would have felt, you know what, this is just not a fit for me. And right. I'm not saying that doesn't happen at all. You know, there's about 2 3% of people are, are just not getting the results they wanted, and that's fine. But what I'm finding now is that people that probably would have sent it back for a refund are now not because – I'm able to address the reasons why they aren't, and now they're getting great results, and they're happy, and I'm happy. I've got another customer. They're getting the results they want. It's win-win all around. So where I'm going is, I mean, if you run a business, 
Try doing it. Every time you get an order from someone, whatever it is, just send them a, a, a quick email and say, hey, thanks a lot for buying the product. If you have any questions about it, just let me know. And right. that goes a long way. People want to feel like you actually give a fuck about their results. You know, they, yeah. they don't want, they're tired of buying stuff from people that are, and wondering whether it's going to work or not and then having non-responsive customer service departments who could care less. They're too busy trying to get their next customer to care about the one who just bought already, which is just a <laughs> dumb way to run your business. But this, this applies to anyone who's in business, whether you run a flower shop or an or a internet store, whatever it is, that the better you treat your customers, the more likely they are to stick around and the more likely they are to tell other people to go your way. It's, it's just win-win for everybody. And you know, I, I don't see why you, sh- you wouldn't care about your customers getting good results because to me, it's like these are, these are not friends of mine that I know personally, but it, it, to me, I kind of look at them like they are friends because they're supporting me. They're trusting me saying, you know what? I like this guy. I'm going to trust him and buy this product because I think it's good. I want to make sure that they know that I appreciate that. So, I mean, it's, right. just, it's just win-win for everyone. So, if you run a business, try it out. See how, how, see how it goes for you. Yeah, and the cool thing is this also helps you improve your products in the future. Absolutely. So you, you're getting yeah. this feedback. And yep. I mean, here's the thing. We can't see and know everything when we're creating products or when we're putting together a service. And the best way, I mean, why do you think they do so many test runs and taste tests? And this? they want to get that feedback so they can improve the product. So it may not necessarily be something toward improving the testosterone booster now, but it can definitely go toward your enzyme product that you're putting together. Right. Different things. So all this stuff is also ongoing research because who better to get research from than the actual customer? Not a bunch of people just on the outside like, oh, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I've heard about it. It's cool. No, these people, they are really out in the trenches. And you want to see because one thing about it, all of us, we're not created the same. So different things are going to react with, with different people. So right. we want to see like, okay, here's this guy. He's 40, he, and this is how it worked for him. He's a guy that was – he's a professional. He works 90 hours a week. He's seen great results. All right, here's a guy who's 35. He trains four or five days a week. He has a, he pretty much works at home, maybe 15 hours, 10 hours, something like that. He vacations all the time, but it's not necessarily working the best for him. Now, that right there, you have to wonder, okay, what's going on in these situations? So then, of course, you want to delve deeper. So it's not going to be an exact situation with every customer, every client. So, right. like I said, it's great research for you. On the flip side of that, this is something I really want us to talk about in the future on, on the show business-wise is that follow-up support. And we've talked about this before where we have these people who, these Internet marketers that put out a product, and then you have all their affiliates who pretty much bombard your, your email box with the same campaign. And yeah. what sucks about most of these products is that most of them are, like I said, the one-hitter quitters. They do, they're doing it this one time. They're looking for the big launch. And once they get all their thousands of dollars or whatever, their six-figure launch, they're done. There's no support with the product after that because they've already reached out to their outsourcing employees to start creating the next product so they can do another one-hitter-quitter product. So they're really not even concerned at this product. And I know one specific person who, who's been in the game for a while, and every time this person created a product, man, it was this big launch, this big whoop-to-do, whatever for it. And once it came out, that person was done. There was no real follow-up because they were creating another product, and then they created another one, and then another one. And this went on and on and on to the fact that this person eventually – was no longer in the industry that they were putting these products out anymore because people started to get hip to that person's BS. And right. so that person right. ended up having to hop into another industry. And pretty much <laughs> almost yeah. they're repeating the same cycle over and over again. And guess what? Pretty soon they're going to have to get out of that industry as well. 
course, that industry is already oversaturated with a bunch of bullshitters as it is. So right. here's my deal, people. Never underestimate the power of follow-up and support. And that's another reason why I haven't rushed to put out the coaching program I mentioned a few weeks ago, because I want to make sure that I have all the resources in place to also give people follow-up and help them out and give them support once they do the program. So once they do the, 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 um, excuse me, the nutrition course and the weight management course, that they have the support once they're done with it or while they're doing it. So I want to make sure all those things are put together. So you're not just sitting there like, okay, I bought the course. I went through it. I saw the videos. I, I got the PDFs. I've listened to the audios. I'm, I'm pretty much, okay, I, I got all that. But how do I do this? What's going on with this? I don't think I'm doing this right and blah, blah, blah. And just to show you that there's a human being on the other side of that product. And I think that's, that's the takeaway here. Always make sure that that customer knows that there is a human on the other side of the product. And that goes back to what I saying. You don't have to sit there when Mike sends a follow-up email. It's not going to be one of those do not reply emails where it seems just pretty much it's, it's a robot. It's like, yeah, do not reply to this email because no one will respond to it. I think that is like the funniest, most arrogant BS email to ever receive when you get a yeah, product. Yeah, yeah, no, isn't that funny? <laughs> It's That's laughable at the same time as a big well, fuck it's like, well, yeah, it's like, why are you even sending me this if I can't respond to it? You know, I mean, it's just, it's why just, would you do that? And, and <laughs> I'm like, you just lost a customer. You just lost me when you send me that. Like, do not reply to this email. No one will respond to it. Well, guess what? I won't respond either with my bank account ever again. You're done. Right. <laughs> so. No, and I, and I bought a lot of supplements over the year. I mean, I've, I've been a supplement guy since I was 18, so I, I've tried my fair share of products and and it, it, it was rare that you would buy a product, even good products, it was rare that they would have strong customer service. Support. Right. You pretty much had to do your own research and try to figure it out. If, if you weren't getting the results you wanted, you had to try to figure it out on your own. And I always hated that feeling. It was, it was such a waste of time for me to, to, to try to do that. So my attitude was I, I want to create a supplement line that I, as a customer, would want to buy. In other words, good products that actually work, but also have a, a support system in place where if I have a concern about something, I can actually get an answer to that rather right. than just being left on my own to try to figure it out. And I, I think that's, that's what I'm trying to provide with what I do. And that's one of the other reasons why I don't want to go through a lot of distributors like GNC and Vitamin Shop and all these other things because that's when you'll lose that. Because someone who buys it there, yeah, sure, they can find me on the website if they buy it from some other store and all that. But uh, people don't tend to really make those steps. No, yeah, they, so they tend to go back to where they purchased the product. So exactly. GNC, like, they'll, they'll why is this not working? Ask, exactly. They'll ask really, them. And are you going to trust your product to the GNC guy <laughs> who's working <laughs> yeah. part-time for the summer? He's like some ATO guy. The only, reason why, the only reason why he's working at GNC is so he can get a discount on supplements himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. So my, my attitude is, look, if I just sell direct to the customer, I make more profit per item, so I don't have to sell as much to make a good income off the products. The customer can actually have a – a one-to-one -one interaction with me, the formulator of the actual product. So I, who's going to know more about it than me? No one. I'm the, guy, I'm the guy who put it together. And if I don't have the answer, I know who does. So I'll find the answer for that customer. So I, anyway, you know, that's, that's, what I, that's what I like to do with my business. I'm, I'm not concerned about selling hundreds of thousands of units of it. I'd rather sell a couple thousand a month and, and just have a direct line to each person who buys it. I make plenty with that, with that amount of sales. And then the, the customer gets much better much better service as well. So that to me is win-win on all fronts. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that, that the more you take charge of, the less you actually have to, to, to actually, the less customers you actually have to pull in to make a good income. So for example, 
you know, if I want to promote a workshop and I do everything on my own from writing the ad copy to getting the registrations on my website to booking the venue, you will make, if you, if you do this effectively, you will make way more doing that than you will trying to get someone to do all that for you. In other words, oh, you contacted Jim and say, hey, how about bringing me out to do this? Okay, you may be able to get the person to bring you out, but I guarantee you it's not going to be anywhere near as much as what you can create on your own. No one's going to pay me what I can make in a day through my own efforts. No one's going to pay me that much. No one. No one would. People would think I'm crazy if I even asked for it. But I know I'm worth that because I've created for myself over and over and over again for the last 12 years. So I was just yeah, it's that- so funny. I had someone that, that um, probably about a year ago wanted to bring me out, and they were like, well, so, yeah, we want to get you out here, and so just tell us, you know, what your fee is, and, and, and we'll, you know, we'll go from there. I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> I'm like, this is pretty much how I like to do it. I'll pretty much handle the rest. I mean, I, I learned big time. My thing is, and one of the things that Daniel talked about in one of his uh, presentations when he's talking about um, maximizing reachfulness, one of the last things he said was he encourages theft, which means see what works and rip it off. <laughs> he said not necessarily right. steal it, but, you know, it's what we've talked about before, mirroring whatever, especially right, right. mirroring people that they're doing things that you want to do. So I learned this from you years back. My thing is like, and plus, I'm a little bit of a control freak. So, and I just, I, I, especially for something like this, I feel like if anybody, no one's going to do it better than I can and do it the way that I want it to be done and speak in the voice that I want and this and the other. So, right. my thing is I'll handle the registrations and, okay, I'll write my own copy because I've been doing it forever and I don't think you could ever speak in my voice. So, that's right. the thing. I don't want to be in very dry and generic and bland and just whatever. I, you, you're not going to speak like I do. Right. And so... And they were just like, oh, wow, you, you actually do all that? And come to find out, like, anybody that they brought before never did those things. They just pretty much, yeah, pay me and I'll show up. I'm right. like, no, I've never been that guy. I've never yeah, been that I guy. mean, you have to work so much harder. To, I mean, you'd have to do – I mean, you could do ten workshops of your own and, and take care of the whole promotion cycle and make more than someone who does 30 or 40 where they're just getting paid to show up and leave. Now, most, most, coach, most coaches love the whole pay to show up and leave because they don't want to do any of that hard work. They just want to, right. get, they just want to do the fun. The fun stuff is what? It's teaching. The fun stuff is not writing ad copy and getting people registered and making sure they show up. None of that stuff is fun. We all do it because we have to, but that's not the fun part. The fun part is showing up to the course and teaching. That's the fun part. Right. And so, so a lot of coaches are, frankly, lazy. They don't, they don't want to do all the marketing and hard work, and they're like, no, nah, I'll just take 10 times less so I can just show up and teach and then move on. And I'm just fine. You, you want to work five times harder than I have to to make it less? That's your thing. But my but you know what also, I'd, rather, I'd rather maximize my time. Exactly. And this also gives them a door that we choose not to take. And this gives them a door of not accepting responsibility. So right, if there's right. a room, you know, there's a, if they're doing a workshop, it's a year later, six months later, whatever, and there's only five people in the room, well, now they can put the blame on whoever the host was because the host right. was try to put those bodies in the room but when it's just you and you're doing all the marketing efforts for the most part and they're you know it's empty it's all on you and then right. here comes that struggle that's we talked about with daniel uh, else's fault. Yeah. yeah so you know when we talked about with daniel here comes that struggle now and that pain and you're going to try to figure out you're going to fail quickly you're going to like figure it out like okay why is it this room is empty this time and you're going to go back and look at your efforts because you have a direct line to see pretty much who put this thing together being you and you'll figure it out and Hopefully you'll fix it. And but when there's somebody else doing all the work for you, it's easy to sit back on your ass and go, dude, nobody was here. 
well, you still have to pay me, you know. Yeah, so, like, well, and guess what? It creates a shitty situation for everybody because now no, their relationship is going to go out the window. Yeah, I can tell you that personally because I've been on that side of it where I've promoted courses with other coaches, and they didn't do jack to get anybody in the room. And then, uh, you know, there's 25 people in there. There's 20 people in the room that are like, oh, wow, you know, good turnout. I was like, yeah, because of what I did. <laughs> and I, I didn't make any money on this. And they're like, well, what are we going to do the next one? I go, we're not going to do another one. Because, <laughs> because I, I paid you guys what I promised I would pay you because I'm a stand-up guy, but I didn't make anything on this. So I'm not, you know, I'm not in the business to lose money or work hard to make nothing. So we right. don't work again. Now, what if these people actually put a little bit of effort in so that more people showed up? Instead of just 20, we had 40 now because they put in some effort, and then I made money. They could have had a relationship where we could have kept that thing going. But right. you know, your, your host is not going to – they're not going to keep promoting you for nothing. And I've, and I've talked to people in other countries where they're saying, look, you know, we've, we've brought in people where it's less and less each time we bring them in. And they're not doing jack to get anybody in the room, and it's getting to the point where I'm starting to lose money to bring them in. How, how long do you think these people are going to keep bringing you in? No one's going to keep bringing you in if they're losing money or just breaking even. You know, they, it has to be a win-win for the promoter as well. So I mean, so so my attitude, my attitude is it's, it's it's that's one of the reasons why I stopped doing a lot of workshops where I'm I'm promoting these big events with a bunch of other people because I end up having to do too much work. To make sure the whole thing goes through, and and then that makes you resentful and you're irritable about it. And my dude's like, why am I doing this? I could just promote myself or work with someone like you, sincere, where we 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 work together and and we're we're both on the same page, where we're promoting yeah. it together and getting getting good people getting people in the room together, so that no one has that feeling. Yeah, one of the things I'll never forget, probably a couple years ago when I first started doing workshops, I remember you telling me like, dude, don't stop doing stop doing workshops with other people. You're at the point now, just do them on your own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, I took that to heart, and, and I stopped doing workshops with other people. If there are only a few people that I would do workshops with, that being yourself or Ken, for the yeah. most part. But I've had so many people approach me like, hey, let's do a workshop together. And I, and I always look, I'm like, why would I do a workshop with this person? I'm like, what, <laughs> is, what A, you know, it's not, it's not arrogant, it's just the truth, but who are you? It's right. like, and then trust me, if I were to say their names right now, I'm pretty sure anyone listening to this show like, who, who the hell is that? Exactly. Right. And right. not saying, like, I'm, the, I'm this big global superstar or anything like that. But all I know is I would be the one putting in the work because I've worked so hard to build a following. Right. I didn't just do this last year and the year before that. I've been doing this for over a decade in this game, man. And there are people who've been in this game for just as long as I have, and they're still relatively unknown for anything. And they're mad and they're jaded because they're sitting on the Lord because they feel like, well, I'm a talented coach. I'm smart. I know how to like get results. But the thing is, you're pretty much, it's almost, you're preaching to the choir. You have your same circle of people who've known you forever. And my thing is, with the Internet, there's no reason, and I said this about, I said this to DJs over 15, 20 years ago. There is no reason to be a local DJ ever again. I said this back probably like 1996, 97. Yeah. Just as the Internet was starting to get really popular during the days of AOL, I was telling DJs then, like, dude, there's no reason to be a local DJ ever again. Funny, my friend and I, who um, used to run an internet radio station with me. We were talking about this this past weekend. It's like, do you just remember how people looked at us like we were crazy? When we said, like, nobody has to be local. No one has to be at a local radio station anymore. No one has to be a local DJ anymore. And even now, no one has to be a local trainer. No one has to be just an expert in your town. We're global now. If you can get on the internet, you're now officially global. The opportunity is there. Take it. Stop thinking small and stop living small and then expecting something big to happen. It's not going to work that you, way. You could, you, could live in, you could live in like Wichita, Kansas and build a global business. You know what I mean? You could live exactly. in 
you can live in Missouri and be flying to Australia and teaching. It, it's, it's such a different landscape now than it used oh, to yeah. be. And that kind of brings up one of our guests that I can't wait to have on. We got a, we got a lady coming up in, I think it's, it's the next week that we have her on or the following, no, it's the following week. Following we week. have, yeah, we have, a, there's a great lady we came across called Nadine Pisani, and she's the author of a book called Happier Than a Billionaire. And it's about how she and her husband quit their jobs, which they hated, and moved to Costa Rica. And they don't work. They don't work at all now. Now she no. writes books, and they have fun every day. And they're living off twelve hundred dollars a month. Yeah, they're living off twelve hundred bucks a month. And they're not even they, owning anything. I mean, they're exactly. they're really they have a nice they have a nice lifestyle. So I mean, you know, you know what's funny about that, sincere? That when I, when I was watching that clip, I'm like, you know what? I was like, look at the way these people are living on twelve hundred bucks a month. Now, now my business. I could live in Costa Rica, and it wouldn't affect my business one bit. Not at all. Because I have an Internet-based business. My workshops, I travel to teach. So whether I'm flying from Vegas or Costa Rica, it's only a difference in hours. And then uh, my fulfillment company takes care of all my orders. It's not me exactly. running to the post office to do it. So, I mean, I, I could live anywhere in the world where I have an Internet connection and still run my business. So I'm, I'm looking at their lifestyle, and I'm thinking, man, I could live like a kingpin down Oh, dude, there. let me tell you. <laughs> when, when my wife and I, when, when, you, when you send me the clip, when you yeah. send me that clip, and you know, you you know personally that that is our plan. One of the reasons why you send me that clip because you know that is our plan yeah. to get the hell yeah. out of here and go to Costa Rica. But she goes, baby, they're living off twelve hundred dollars a month. Do you understand what we could do? I said, yeah. What we could basically do with that type of lifestyle is actually have another rental property in Paris, which I love Paris. And ever since I was in elementary school, I always dreamed of living in Paris. Well. If we live in Costa Rica, we can spend half the time there and half the time in Paris, and guess what? It wouldn't even hit our pocketbooks that much because of Costa Rica. Trust me, my brain was going, and like I said, you and I have the type of business where we can just pick up and go. I can even go now, even, teach, even though I'm teaching classes at the gym that I'm running with my buddy, I don't have to be there. I have coaches who can come step in and do it for me. Right. I don't have to be there. I feel like one of the best ways to really, truly be an entrepreneur is to have a business that doesn't own you. Yeah. And that's the thing. So when you're there and you have to be there 24-7, you have to be on call 24-7, at that point, you're working. You're not an entrepreneur. You're, you have a job. But other than that, yeah, it's, it's it takes the fun out of being an entrepreneur at that point. Yeah, it, it, like I said, yeah. you've got to work to get there. It's not going to happen overnight. Don't get no. us wrong. Don't just think like, well, it's easy for you guys to say, well, I have all this business. We get it. We know, first of all, it's not easy to be an entrepreneur. But at the same time, we have a lot more opportunities to create a little bit more of an easier lifestyle for ourselves. And then if we work for someone else who's constantly telling us what to do and we're at their beck and call. It's hard to make a business successful. There's no doubt about that. But it's not as hard as people think it is either. No. Now, most, most people, their, their fears of what they think is going to happen is what stops them more than actually what happens when you get started. You know, right. they, they, it's, it's all the things that in their mind of, oh, you got to do this, got to do that, got to do this, so they never get started. But when you're out there doing it, I mean, I can't imagine not doing – I can't imagine not living the way I live now in terms of how I make money. You know, if we're having to show up at a job and ask permission for vacations and all that, I'm not knocking anyone who's in that because I've been there too. And, hey, if you're happy doing that, more power to you. But if you're not happy doing that, you're really missing out because the lifestyle I have now, you have, and a lot of us that are all friends in this business and other businesses who, who do their own thing is, is so much more fun and satisfying on so many more levels. I mean, I, not only do I make a lot more now than I ever did working for someone else, the, the sense of fulfillment, I never had that working for other people. You know, where right. I'm getting emails from people saying, man, I really benefited from your video or your workshop or your product or your, your podcast. I mean, I, I get that kind of stuff every week. 
every day basically I get I, I get nice emails like that. I mean, I've never got something like that working right. for other people. So I mean, there's there's so much fulfillment and gratification that, that I mean, I can't imagine not living like this where you make a good income, you love what you do, people are getting a lot out of it. I mean, what what more is there to ask for than that? I mean, that's it. So right. I mean, if you, if you can parlay that into then, then you start thinking, okay, I, I've got that down. Now, what if, what, if, what if I lived in a place like Costa Rica or somewhere else where I can really make my money go far and just live in a really peaceful environment? Now, you know, we're, we're not trying to say that uh, you know, Costa Rica is paradise, and that's what I like about this book that Nadine yeah, yeah. wrote is that she talks about a lot of the negatives. And there's plenty of negatives, just like there are in any country. You know, anybody that has ever been to another country, if you're there for a couple of days, you often think about the positives. If you're there for a couple of weeks, you think about the negatives. Except for a place like India. You show up in India and the negatives hit you the first day. <laughs> you could be in India for 24 hours and be like, oh, shit, what did I get myself into? And I remember this, this comedian in New York City had a really funny joke about India, how like that dysentery was invented by India. <laughs> you know? And anyone, anyone who's ever been to India, you know exactly where that joke's coming from, man, because you could – I don't think anyone's ever been to India and not had some bad dysentery. It's like it's inevitable. It's like one of those things that you're going to have to deal with when you're there, man. It, it, it's, it's an amazing country, and it's, an, it's, it's an incredible place to visit, so don't get me wrong. But it, it, it's an adventure, man, to say the least. But, uh, you know, back, back to Costa Rica, yeah, it's not like it's – I've never even been to Costa Rica, so it would be ridiculous for me to talk about how great it is. I've never even been there. I'd love to check it out soon and see what it's all about. But I, this, I'm going to start with that by getting this lady on – Nadine on the, on the podcast and talking about her book and her adventures there and so forth. And I think it'll be, I think it'll give people some food for thought. It might give you an idea of maybe, maybe, maybe you may, you've never thought about living in another country, but after hearing the show and checking out this book, possibly, I think you may reconsider that. And, and on that note, since we're talking about another book, I have to give a shout out to Nicholas Engel. Look, dude, like we said, you're probably going to buy some more books. <laughs> so here's the deal, people. Yeah. Let, let me just say this right now. If <laughs> Being a listener, an avid listener of this show consistently, here's what you're going to need besides an open mind. You're going to need an Audible account, a Kindle account, a Half.com account, <laughs> because the thing is, when we bring these guests on and you actually get to see that on the other end of this product is a human being, and that's the beauty of what we're doing with this show. We're showing the human side of all these different things that we're interested in here. When you see who these people are and really see their personalities, it's kind of hard not to want to go out if you don't already have their book or whatever product they have. You don't have it already. You want to go out and get it. And right. you're talking to two dudes who are straight-up nerds. We love to read. We love to read. We're constantly reading this. We're constantly like, hey, man, I just read this book. Check it out. Check this book out. And to the point where I know my freaking phone, this is like I got a backup of so many books that I'm having to get to on my Audible account. To the point now, I just switched more to my Kindle account now, and I'm reading more of those. So I even got um, – our guest Nadine that we're speaking of about Costa Rica, um, Happier Than Billionaires. I actually bought that on Kindle because I actually want to read that one and not listen to it. I didn't even check to see if it was on Audible as an audio yeah, book. I don't, I don't actually, think it is, actually. Because I actually wanted this one as a guide because, again, Costa Rica is in the crosshairs for my wife and myself. We plan within the next six months to go there and visit <clears throat> and then eventually probably visit again and try to spend a little bit more time in there. First of all, just getting right, your feet wet. Yeah. We're putting our toes in the water the first time. So right, maybe that's the way to do it. That's yeah, about a week, a week and a half. Then the next time, we'll probably do two weeks or three weeks, and then the next you time may, a month. You may even go for a week and decide, nah, you know, not exactly. look at exactly. somewhere else. And you go for a week if you like it, then you go back for a month. If you're there for a month, you'll know for sure whether you want to live there or not. Exactly. And the thing with Costa Rica is, like, you've got to try different places. 
Because the yeah. thing about it, it's, not, it's just not one place. It's not just San Jose. You want to try other parts of it. You want to try more on the Pacific Coast. You want to yeah, try like, the other side like of it. You go to America for the first time, and then you go to Ohio, and you don't like it. You <laughs> it's like, well, try California, Vegas, Texas, D.C., New York City. You've know, you got to try different places before you just get up and go. You know, Detroit doesn't represent Las Vegas. And Las, Vegas <laughs> Las Vegas doesn't represent San Diego. You know, it's all different places. Exactly. So you got to check them all out. So, yeah, man, that's pretty much how we're going to do it. And like I said, I'm looking forward to that interview. And, yeah, I can't wait. And we also have um, next week, we have your buddy Anthony coming on, right? Yeah, we have Anthony Roberts coming on next week, who is a, he's, a, he's an expert in a lot of things, performance enhancements, very well-versed in steroids. So he can, I think we'll have an honest discussion about the pros and cons of steroids. They're, they're usually either deified or they're just totally denigrated. And Anthony can give us some real just real information on that in an unbiased way. And then he's also the guy who introduced me to bulbine natalensis, which is the cornerstone ingredient in my testosterone booster. He was very instrumental in helping me get that product out there. Very knowledgeable about a variety of nutrition supplements as well. So that, that'll, be a, that'll be a really interesting conversation. What I like about Anthony as well is that if, if there's a supplement company out there and they're unscrupulous, he will go at them like a pimple. I mean, he will <laughs> blog. He has a blog in another country, so he doesn't have to worry about anyone uh, censoring him or trying to sue him or anything like that, right? It's like right. a blog in Mexico or something like that. And he, if, if there are companies that are doing unscrupulous stuff, he will go after them hard and tell you exactly what they're doing. Like so many scams in the supplement business, and there's so many of them, I've learned about through Anthony's stuff. Very interesting blog and so forth. So it's, it's kind of like, like if I ever start screwing people over, Anthony will be the guy who tells everyone about it. He'll be like, all right, my friend Mike just started doing this. Yeah, he'll be that kind of guy. If you're a good guy, you have nothing to worry about from a guy like Anthony, right? Because he, he's not going to, you know, if, you don't, if you're a cool guy and you operate a business well, he's not going to talk a bunch of smack about you. But if, if he finds out that you're doing stuff in an unscrupulous manner and that you're screwing people over making crappy products, he has no qualms about blogging all day about it and getting that information out there. So scam artists hate this guy, which means... It's good <laughs> to have a guy like that in your life. Yeah, it's good to have friends yeah. like that who call you. That's what friends are about, calling you on your bullshit. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and not just letting you get away with stuff because, I mean, that's what... I mean, that's the beautiful thing about guys like you, Ken, Steve, having those, you know, Steve Carter, all these guys, having these guys in my circle keeps me honest. And they'll keep me on the straight and narrow. They're not going to let me get away with BS because they're stand-up right. guys. So I surround myself. It goes back to that circle. So right. you got to really take a look at your tribe, man. Look at the people in your circle, and you got to ask yourself, because they are a reflection of your personality. And you may not exactly be like them, but the thing is, if you're tolerant to what the BS that they do, it makes you just like them. So you're a BS monger at that point. So you got to ask yourself, like, hey, pretty much, is this who I am? Is this how I want to be? And the thing is, if they can't take your honest criticism and your honesty or whatever, then maybe it's not the best relationship to have because right. they have some other issues going on. They probably need some time to themselves. Yep. So and then work that out. No one's saying kick them to the curb, but you know, again, if that's not the path you're trying to go down, and it's going to end up bringing you down at the same time, makes you yep. really, you really have to really take that into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. So if this month we have Nadine on the 15th, we got Anthony Roberts next week talking about just steroids and nutrition supplements. And then we'll have James Pond, our friend James Pond, on the last week of October. He's going to come back and give us some updates on some of the things he's doing to stop human trafficking. And if you're not familiar with James Pond, go back and check out Episode 9. We did a really good episode with him and his, talking about his organization, Transitions Global, 
and all the things he does to help victims of human trafficking, primarily women. But, you know, there's some young men that have unfortunately been victimized as well, but a, a lot of young women have, have gone through a horrible trauma, and he does a great job helping these ladies out, getting just getting their mental and emotional health back and leading fulfilling lives. So he's, he's a real stand-up guy, real-world hero. We can't wait mm-hmm. to have him back on the show. And check out his organization, transitionsglobal.org, and see what you can do to help out. You can rest assured that when you send money to his organization, he and his wife, Athena, run it, it's going to go to help out these girls. He doesn't have a trust fund somewhere, someone in the Cayman Islands. He's not driving a Ferrari. Now, he's a guy who's very dedicated to what he's doing. So we'll definitely get him back on. So we, we got a solid month, man, this, this month. We, got, we, we kicked it off today with Daniel Cole, which was one of my favorite guests, period. And then we've got Anthony Roberts, who people are going to love. We've got Nadine. And then we've got James Pond coming back. So we, we got a solid October. People are going to yeah. love Yeah, and then on top of that, you know, you're being the U.K. I have the, the IKFF cert coming up with Ken. So it's a busy month, man. Oh, and by the way, you also have a birthday this month, too. Yeah, yeah, I got, I'm hitting the big 4-0 pretty soon. Yeah, club, <laughs> man. And because I'm on aggressive strength, I still I still wake up with morning erections, so I'm happy to go into my 40s and still feel like I'm 18. <laughs> TMI. Worry, yeah, exactly. Don't worry, folks. No, no, no photos or pics will be posted on my Facebook. Okay, Anthony Weiner. Okay, Carlos Danger. Yeah, keep those I know, I know a lot of you have requested that, but sorry, I'm a modest guy. not going on there. <laughs> But if you want to see me dance, um, I, I'm available in Vegas every Thursday. Yeah, never. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that's, nope. uh, and then, yeah, I'm going to be in the UK on uh, with teaching with Dan John at Sabina Scala. The course is actually sold out right now. It's October 19th and 20th. But uh, we have a waiting list. So shoot us the waiting list. Chances are we'll have someone drop out before the course, and we might be able to fill you in. So check that out. Then I'm teaching in Dublin, Ireland the following weekend. And then that is it. I'm done with workshops for a while. Done. Not going to do any for a long time. I'm just going to focus on uh, moving to Costa Rica and living on 1,200 bucks. <laughs> I'm done with you folks, man. None of this workshop crap anymore. No. I'm going to take a break from workshops, and I'll think I'll start going again in 2015. I don't know. I've got other things I want to focus on, like the podcast, more supplements. Speaking of which, I've got my inflammation control systemic enzyme product, which is expected to ship out to my fulfillment company this week, Thursday or Friday, so tomorrow or Friday which means I will have it ready to sell next week. And you can use the coupon code RESTORE, R-S-T-O-R-E, to get 15% off when that comes out. It's only good for the, for the Restore's not product. And we still have our coupon code LLA for 10% off my testosterone booster, my recovery oil, and 30% off in Zero's video. Exactly. And that is it, man. We got uh, we, we got some good UFCs coming up this month too. We got Cain Velasquez rematch with Junior Dos right here in Houston, Texas, baby. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And it's going down the same weekend. Great. We're doing the the same weekend. We're doing the IKFF yeah. certification. So hey, come on down to Houston, get certified in kettlebells with Ken Blackburn and myself, and then hey, we can go catch the fight. Right yeah, here are you guys are you guys gonna have a little fight party or anything? Either at your yeah, house gonna have, or yeah, we're gonna have a, a nice little watch party here at our house at my house. Awesome. And, uh, awesome. So yeah, man, it's gonna be a lot of fun. So therefore, instead of spending five hundred to a thousand dollars to go and get nosebleed seats at the Toyota Center, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our, you know, our friends can come on over here and we we don't have to have overpriced drinks or anything like that and enjoy it right here. No doubt. Take a great workshop with Ken and Sincere. Check out the fights with the group afterwards. That, that's a great weekend right there. I mean, if, if, I were, if I were in town, I'd come down just to hang out with you guys for sure. 
But uh, I'll be in London that weekend, so I'll be I'll be catching. I'm gonna, I, I want to see the fights. That's going to be great. So hopefully they'll be showing somewhere out there. I'm sure I'll catch it at some point. And then uh, next week there's a UFC with Jake Shields versus uh, Damian Maya. That's going to be a good fight. I, I think Damian Maya's got that, but we'll, we'll talk about that one next week. Yeah. And uh, that's about it, man. Uh, anything else? Anything hey, else? Man, that's, that's good to go. So you can check us out, MikeMahler.com, NewWarriorTrain.com. Catch us on Twitter at Mike Mahler, at Sincere Hogan. Find us on Facebook, LLA Podcast. All of that is where you can find all the information on the show. Give us your feedback. Make sure you hop over to iTunes and please drop a review. We would love that. So definitely going to start giving those review shout-outs as well at the end of the show. So stay tuned. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a little confidence. I've got a little gift idea for people that are giving us reviews as well. So we'll, we'll discuss that then. So basically – so go get a review, write up a review, email it to us, and we're going to have a I've got an idea for a gift, basically. Well, I'll just go ahead and say it right now. If you write a review for us, it doesn't have to be a five-star review. It's just an honest review for the show. And then you email me that review. My email is at my website. I will send you a free copy of a hormone lecture series I did last year, which is extremely comprehensive on optimizing hormones naturally, eight hours of material, the $50 gift, I'll email you that for free. So if you put up a testimonial, it doesn't have to be a testimonial, just an honest review for the show, send me an email showing me that you did it, I will email you that back. So there you go. How about that? How about a little you know what? And I'll throw, in, I'll throw in a digital copy of the Wellness Code book as well that um, I did with John Spencer Ellis and other fitness experts. So. All right. While we're on this, I'm going to throw in a flashlight on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> And guess what? And that's where we'll stop with all the gifts. <laughs> first, first ten people to do a review, you're gonna get a free flashlight. All right? How about and, that? And, a night, and a half pound, a half pound jar of coconut oil, and you can use it at your discretion. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, everybody. I appreciate it. See y'all next week.